You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. They hunted him down. You know, Colonel, we went to a lot of trouble to find you. They murdered his friends. And they took the only thing he would kill for. If he wants your kid back, then you gotta cooperate. Right? Wrong. Now, somewhere, somehow, someone's gonna pay. Do you think that he's going to give us any problems? You'll do exactly as he's told. Last and wake, you fellas. You're a funny guy, Sally. That's why I'm going to kill you last. Are you going to tell me what's going on or what? No. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. What are you doing? Helping you get her back. Remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's what made you think you did. I lied. If it's a mission no man can survive, he's the man for the job. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Commando. It's a party. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Chris Dashu. Let's party. Also back in the booth is Mr. Tai Singh. Hey, I can't believe this macho bullshit. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we're looking at the 1985 film from director Mark L. Lester, Commando. The film stars Arnold Schwarzenegger. The film really defines 1980s action films, hyper-violence, a killer soundtrack, and so many corny one-liners. The only thing missing is gay panic and a good dose of misogyny, but maybe we can find some of those, too, as we look hard enough. Of course, we're going to be spoiling this 35-year-old film, so if you haven't seen Commando... Go watch it immediately. We will still be here. Now, Chris, I think this movie might be older than you are, so I'm very curious. When did you first see it, and what did you think? Well, first off, I'm taken aback by the fact that you're mentioning this is just a film and not as a classic, sir. I'm very sorry. I have to apologize to all the listeners at home. I don't remember when I first saw it, but I would have more than likely been somewhere between the ages of 8 to 15 so, yes, this film is older than me by five years. I saw this film when I was in my either, I would have been, I don't know, early teens. Let's just say early teens. So you were coming to manhood when this movie, maybe this helped you come to manhood? Sure. 
enough okay. there's enough testosterone oozing off the screen. You know, it's one of these movies where there's almost so little to it that you're almost surprised it's as good as it is. It is one of, if not the quintessential, just stripped down, no sci-fi, no genre, nothing, just Arnold at his most Arnold. And Ty, how about you? When did you first see it and what did you think? So I am two years older than this film. So I remember seeing it, I think I was about 11 or 12. And I had this school friend called Mike. Whenever we would have a sleepover at his house, he would also always bring out some VHS classic to show us. It would be films like Mad Max 2 or The Road Warrior, as you know, in the States, or Commando or Aliens. Point Break or Bad Boys 2. Which one do you think I prefer? No, I mean, which one do you want to watch first? Mike was my introduction to many a classic 80s film. So I probably saw this for the first time around 1994, 1995, when I was about 11 or 12. I remember just being blown away by the sheer body count of the film. It was hilarious and uh, it was overwhelming. And I think that that is the moment that just my image of Arnie just was solidified in my mind. You must have been familiar with Schwarzenegger before you saw this film. I mean, growing up any time after, say, 1975, you're going to know Arnold Schwarzenegger. Did you have a favorite Arnold before you saw Commando? If I remember correctly, I might have seen parts of the first Terminator by then. Of course, I was of the age where I remember Terminator 2 coming out, but I was too young to see it. So I got lots of action figures for a film that I wasn't able to see. But I think that the film in my mind, that I mostly knew him for was Twins at this point. I, I, of course, knew he had been in a film called Conan the Barbarian, but when you're 11 or 12, you haven't, I don't, I hadn't yet seen it. But, you know, my parents had introduced me to Twins, which I think was his mainstream comedy. And then I think after Commando, I would definitely have seen The Terminator, Track Down, Total Recall, and, and Kindergarten Cop. But yeah, I think he was just known as this big action star, and I'd probably primarily just seen him in Twins at that point. It's a little ironic to me that you guys are seeing Commando right as you're turning like 11, 12, 13-ish, because I think I was 13 when this film came out, and I definitely didn't see it at the theater, so I would have seen it on VHS or cable, so I was probably maybe 14 when I saw it, and I was, I think, already somewhat familiar with, with Arnold just from some of the other things. I remember my parents forbidding me to watch Conan the Barbarian, but then things like Raw Deal and Terminator, I was familiar with those. And I still, I love Raw Deal. It's one of my very favorite Arnold films, even though I know it's pretty awful. I want you to be the Godfather. All right, I'll help, I'll help. Like, give me the goddamn chair. Then walk. I can't walk! Then meet me halfway, come on. Commando, holy shit. When this started playing in heavy rotation on cable... I can't remember how many times I saw this film and then rewatching it again last night with a much more critical eye. I was like, there's not a whole lot that happens in this movie. Like there's one part where we kind of get into like a more of a detective story where they're trying to figure out where Jenny is. It drags a little bit, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, I, I'm all right with this just because that beginning and that end are so incredible that I'm really okay if the middle sags a bit. Well, and the other thing about this movie is this is something that really I've been thinking about more recently because I've been having this conversation with people about uh, leading up to uh, something we're going to be talking about on my podcast, which is Steven Seagal movies, is the idea that in 2020, 
the action hero, as it were, in the 80s, that's, like, gone. That idea is gone. There's not anyone now that I would pin something like this on and they would be believable in the role. There's not a charismatic action star in the vein of Schwarzenegger. And that's because I think Schwarzenegger is a one-of-a-kind action star and actor. A lot of his films, he does very little in the way of acting. It's just his natural charisma coming through on screen. This is, again, one of those films. And that seems to be lost in 2020, where you have a charismatic lead who does very little, but in doing very little, a lot comes out of it. I really miss that in a way, but I know that I don't think in 2020 there's even really a place for that anymore, which is unfortunate in a way. I was a writer and producer on a a documentary last year called In Search of the Last Action Heroes, which talked about how the 80s kind of set the template for action films. And, you know, there there was this kind of debate that, you know, would a film like this exist? And what about the action uh, movie stars and of the 80s and how they compare today? And I think probably the only actor around today who could probably pull off a film like this is Dwayne Johnson. But Dwayne Johnson... You know, you look at him and you go, yes, he's an action star. But the thing about Dwayne is he has a fan base of all ages. And so he doesn't necessarily have to do like an R-rated action film. I mean, he's toyed with a few like Faster, which was kind of a gritty thriller. But, you know, he, he does these kind of big blown blockbusters like um like Skyscraper and the Fast and Furious films, which I would argue are the closest thing to 80s action films um, because, again, they have the the same kind of physics doesn't apply, guns never run out of ammo, you can pull off absolutely crazy stunts and walk away with nary an injury whatsoever. The Fast and Furious films are essentially what would happen if an 80s action film was given a $200 million budget, but, you know, they were asked to just tone down the blood splatters. The Fast and Furious films... While they are still fun, they do take themselves still too seriously. I think Vin Diesel is the only one in those films taking it very seriously. I think everyone else is in on the joke. But but the problem is Vin Diesel's such a big, it almost bleeds into everything else. I think Vin Diesel thinks whenever they make a Fast and the Furious film that they're making Citizen Kane. Yeah. It's like, this is a movie with cars and explosions and actors like serious actors being given a lot of money to just go and chew the scenery. Like that's, that's, that's all these movies are. The Hobbs and Shaw spinoff. I think, you know, Vin Diesel wasn't there and everyone's very aware what kind of action film they're making. And it is an over the blown, ridiculous one. The great thing I like about the Fast and Furious franchises is although there is stupid things going on all the time and there is lots of like winks at the camera, everyone is playing it dead serious, especially when Vin Diesel's in the scene with them. But apart from that, it is just, you know, runways that are clearly 20 miles long. Heroes falling off five-story buildings and just kind of shaking it off. And I think it's hilarious. Cars jumping from building to building. Exactly. Is it Abu Is it Abu Dhabi or Dubai? It's Dubai, yeah. Well, yeah, my good lord. But again, I mean, this movie doesn't take itself... I don't think this movie takes itself seriously. Oh, no. At all. No. Which I appreciate because, again, that seems to be lost that everyone in the movie is not taking it seriously that's what makes this movie so much fun and having people revisit it makes perfect sense 
I mean, it starts off as a very serious film. This whole mystery part, it opens with the guy who's shot taking the garbage cans down. Garbage day! Uh, when Bennett is killed on the wharf, the guy at the Cadillac place, but even those have little punchlines with each death. You know, Bennett doesn't get a punchline here. There's no, like, bon voyage is said, but, like, the best thing I like about it is the price, or I was afraid I missed you guys, no chance. Like, those kind of things where it's just like, all right, you know, even with these more serious scenes, we still have a button on them that is a joke. No, but as soon as the steel drums kick in and Arnie walks into shot with a tree on his shoulder, I think the tone is set immediately. People are like, all oh, right, okay, this is the film we're about to watch. He's carrying a tree. A giant tree and a very tiny chainsaw, which I'm not sure if it looks tiny because it's in Arnold's giant hands or it's just a tiny chainsaw. He could be holding a piece of poster board and it would look like a three by five card. He should have an axe in his hand because come on. Arnold swinging. We get Arnold swinging an axe not, uh, you know, 15 minutes later in the movie, so. I have to bring up the whole fetishization of his body, and that, I think, also talks about what action films were in the 80s versus what they are today. I mean, yeah, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, we definitely fetishize his body. We fetishize, or at least Vin Diesel fetishizes his upper arms. There's this whole thing in his contract where he has to get paid more money if he's going to show his upper arms. When Ryan Reynolds takes off his shirt, you know, the whole six-pack thing, the the, the way that uh, Chris Pratt rebuilt his body to make himself look like the action hero sex god kind of thing. Like, we got away from that for a little while, but in the 80s, like the Stallones, the Schwarzeneggers, I mean, it was so much about the body. And especially with Schwarzenegger, it was just, you know, there was this package of him and that, you know, he was a literal superhero. He couldn't even fit inside of a car the way that he has to rip out the seat of a car so that it can fit inside of it just because he's bigger than life. The whole muscular image of the action hero was caused by Arnie because he came off the big bodybuilding boom. And when he landed on the scene, everyone adapted to look more like him. Uh, Stallone, if you look at him from like Rocky to Rocky three, it is a complete transformation. And then you're getting like the second wave of action heroes like Dolph Lundgren. And they are kind of trying to duplicate that, that Arnold success story because the man was, a franchise unto himself and yeah in the 90s that kind of muscle-bound hero image disappeared in something more live like Keanu Reeves or Christian Slater in Broken Arrow I remember talking to Scott Adkins and he was like after pain and gain when the rock got super big because he wasn't always that big he was always muscular but not the man mountain he is it's like muscles have come back in a, in a big way there is, in my mind, another reason why we're fetishizing Arnold. It's because if I'm a married man and I want to go see this movie, I'm dragging my wife with me. And she needs something to look at while people are being eviscerated on screen. Here's a very muscle-bound man without his shirt on running around shooting people. I guarantee you she's not focusing on the people shooting. She's probably focusing on the fact that Arnold is a good-looking guy with his shirt off. It's there. It's subliminal, but I mean... There's a reason for it. I mean, like we've already talked about with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, very good looking guy, and he knows how to utilize that aspect of his persona to the fullest. Yeah, I find it interesting how many 
men now are older action heroes. Like Arnold was so young when he's making this film. You look at a Hugh Jackman or you look at a Tom Cruise. I mean, Tom Cruise is still out there making action films. And so is Arnold, which is wild. But yeah, you look at these guys, you look at uh, the pictures of Hugh Jackman, like for the last uh, Logan film. And it's just like, how old are you dude? And you're still doing this and you still have those wash- washboard abs. And he talks about the struggle that he has to go through to get in shape for these things. And the whole, like, I don't drink water for three days or blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, oh my God, you're doing all this crazy shit just to present this image of something that is impossible. But I think it's also plays into, you know, if you were to look at the last few years and box office receipts, so many of the number one grossing action films are going to be superhero films. So they're literally otherworldly type bodies and otherworldly type people. Well, and superhero films have kind of democratized in a way the action movie. I mean, again, superhero movies are kind of their own thing, but they're a offshoot of action. And you've got people like Paul Rudd or Benedict Cumberbatch, who, again, those guys would not be confused for action stars in the 80s. They might actually be the villain of the movie opposite the big muscle-bound character, especially in Benedict Cumberbatch's case. He could have realistically played, you know, opposite Bruce Willis in Die Hard. And now you've got these guys as quote-unquote action stars, superheroes, what have you. Yeah, I think it's a good thing that that has transitioned in that direction. Because again, also in the 80s, you never would have seen a female action star. In the vein of what we get now with something like, I forget the name of the film with Charlize Theron, or even the one with Jennifer Garner. Quality aside, the democratization of action films, I appreciate that. But I do also appreciate watching Arnold take a, uh, a saw blade and throw it through a guy's head. The interesting thing about today is even the you know superheroes who are the leading action stars, like uh, Chris Evans and Chris Hemsworth. You know, Captain America isn't like an Arnie character. He, he is a man who for several films has been pining about the love of his life that he lost. And the conclusion to his story is he finally gets his first dance with that woman. And even someone like Chris Hemsworth, he looks like a god. But that man has got comedy timing that Schwarzenegger and Stallone never had. Sir, have you seen Jingle All the Way? <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that the exception that proves the rule or put that cookie down now and as for the uh, democratization of women in film i mean it's better in the 80s we had cynthia rothrock but she was only a vhs star and you had to kind of go to hong kong to find you know the likes of michelle yo or maggie chung laying out the bad guys i mean it's got better with you know charlie's theron and you know scarlett johansson kind of leading a, a wave of decent action films. But yeah, it's that the eighties were, you know, a testosterone rule unto themselves. And I loved it, right? I mean, we could all agree that the eighties is the time and place. If you're an action movie star for this kind of action movie, this is the time and the place you would want to revisit. If you're looking for, I know that this might come off the wrong way, but big, dumb action movies, but I'm not saying dumb in a pejorative or, you know, derogatory way. It's big and dumb, and it knows that's what it is. It knows it's a big, dumb movie. It is the personification of American 80s excess. It is It is big, it is ridiculous, and everyone wants to see it. But yeah, when you think of 80s action films, this is kind of what, what you think of this in First Blood. 
uh, part two, you know, the oiled up action hero muscles rippling with a gun that doesn't run out of ammo, you know, standing fast against an army that should really have no problem hitting him. Firing a light machine gun while holding the belt fed clip. Uh Uh-huh. I'm not going to make any excuses for the last 30 minutes of this movie, which I think are the weakest part of this movie by far. But like you said, Ty, it is completely excess on screen in a way that like, I honestly think if someone, if you released this film in 2020, you'd have a bunch of folks on the internet going, well, did you see that he didn't reload his weapon? Did you see that he's belt feeding this machine gun? It's like, you're totally missing the point here. Totally missing well, I mean, those poor people from Valverde, you know, they always get such a such a bum rap, you know. Did they know that the person that was trying to kill them was a bad guy? Did they think they were the good guys? Like, get out of here with that. Shit. John Matrix, name aside, John Matrix is a superhero. This whole idea that he can smell the bad guys, that he tells one of the soldiers, you know, you need to stay downwind, you know. <laughs> from them, that he can hear the helicopter before anybody else can. I mean, there's just this whole thing where he has superhuman abilities, not just his strength. It is across the board. I mean, I'm surprised they didn't give him like a taste test and he could be like, oh, there's, uh, you know, 2% of this is arsenic or whatever. But he, he's he's 100% a superhero. He's a superhero in that he ate his child's cooking after she told him not to ask what's in it. And that he's, you know, he's perusing uh, one of those uh, Teen Beat magazines. He he loves to keep up on what Jenny's reading. I will say, though, I do love the idea that this character is a single father. I think that is absolutely, for me, one of the most impressive parts of the film, is that they actually make me believe that this guy is a single father. I love that, and I love that it's he's going to save his daughter, which, again, like, it totally works. It's over the top. It's ridiculous. And then you've got his daughter who's defiant until the end about her father, which is so good. The fact that you have this guy is not only a total badass, but he's also a single dad. It's I think it's just I think it's a genius twist. I love that bucolic opening credit scene when they're feeding the deer and going fishing. And it's just like this wonderful life that they're leading in the mountains and away from everyone. I don't know if she's homeschooled or what's going on with Jenny or if maybe there's a a bus that goes by on the mountain road somewhere a few miles away or if he's driving her to school in that Ford Bronco or whatever that is. That relationship, it is great. And I do love it. And they're barely on screen together before she ends up getting kidnapped but you know like that opening credit sequence and that that scene afterwards they are shown being so bonded it's amazing yeah it also shows that she's uh you know incredibly self-sufficient they're they're eating ice cream and then next shot it's matrix showing her how to drive someone's nose into their skull it's you know it's just the typical single father kind of stuff feed deers teach how to mortally wound an enemy. It's it's wonderful. They didn't show the scene where he was slathering her in mud and covering her in leaves so she could hide in the brush somewhere with a knife to stab people. If you're being hunted by an extraterrestrial predator, here's how you stay hidden. Come on, kill me, I'm here! The other thing about this movie, just right at the outset, as soon as you start watching it, is this idea that When it comes to Arnold, he can be in any situation and it's believable. I think that there are very few action stars from the 80s who I would just go, okay, yeah, sure, he's a a single father in the woods. I don't question that at all. 
sometimes you have action stars and action movies in the 80s where they do a little bit of hoop jumping to justify that, the setup of the movie. And I think with Arnold, his charisma comes through so much that I never feel like they're really grasping at straws to justify the initial setup of the character. When you're watching an Arnie film, there is always a certain pinch of salt that you take with his films, especially when you're like, who is this U.S. Special Forces with a thick Austrian accent called John Matrix? Is anyone even going to address the fact that he sounds Austrian? And then there's normally like a throwaway line in in some films. But, you know, for half the time, when you're watching an Arnold Schwarzenegger film, you're like, it's Arnie. What's he up to now? Yep. Okay. I'm on board. Let's do it. To your criticism, I say, no chance. I was surprised that he does make mention of growing up. In, I think he says in this one that he grew up in East Germany. I was like, oh, all right. Because, yeah, like the thing with that I always crack up about Van Damme is them explaining away his accent. That seems to be a necessary thing for every single film. Like, oh, I grew up in the bayou. Oh, um, I grew up in Hong Kong. My brother grew up in France. But yet we still had the same accent for whatever reason. It doesn't feel like with Arnold, they feel like they're ever obligated to do that, if that makes sense. Because, again, I think Arnold just speaks for himself, if that makes sense. Like, this is what he is. There are no bones about it. He's just a big action star. Overlook the, you know, the accent, because they sure do in almost every Arnold film, including Jingle All the Way, which is his best film. Yeah, I mean, no one really questions why you would have a kill a robot that's meant to infiltrate resistance cells and have a six foot four Austrian. The least inconspicuous person on the planet. Here he is. Exactly. But no one questions it. It's like, I'm sorry, this is an infiltration unit. Have you seen that man? He couldn't blend in anywhere. You don't need German shepherds to point him out. Or in Jingle All the Way, where he is dressed up as Turbo Man at the end of the movie and his own wife and child don't recognize him. It's like, how many other people do you know that looks like this man? Your father, that's it. It's like, come on, guys. I have to admit that I always forget about them killing Bennett at the beginning of this film, that that's a ruse in order to get Major Kirby to come up and talk to John. And I don't know. I think they already know where John may be. Otherwise, they are tipped off and act very quickly because it's like as soon as Major Kirby leaves or General Kirby, as soon as he leaves, the bad guys are immediately there. Okay, great for them. But yeah, it's like this whole thing of like the ruse of killing Bennett. Um, I always forget that that happens. And then when they say that Bennett's dead, I'm like, wait, no, he's not dead. He comes back. And I'm like, all right, no, I saw him die, quote unquote, um, when he was in the boat. And it's a very spectacular faking your own death because his boat blows up. So you're kind of like, okay. It's a weird twist, seeing as we're going to find out that, you know, he's alive in 10 minutes' time. But, all right, let's go with it. And we're not giving any context as to who he is. It's just, here's this guy, he's dead now. It's like, okay. Right, and I don't think we know his name when he gets on the boat. So when they say that Bennett's dead, it could be anybody? You don't know who any of them are until Kirby's kind of going, someone's taking out your old unit. And then you're like, oh, that bold guy who was taking out the trash was a special forces soldier okay well yeah he looks just like john matrix i'm surprised they didn't just use arnold for both roles he must have been in the van doing comms because yeah that was my assumption at least but you know 
Again, I try not to give this film too much uh, <laughs> too much thought when it comes to making logical connections. I just kind of go with it when it starts to veer in one direction or the other. I've spoken to a lot of people that worked on this film, from Stephen E. D'Souza to Mark L. Lester to a lot of the cast, and I think everyone knew what they were making, that it was you know, a fun film. I think it was Mark Lester that kind of told me that when the film came out, and this was during Stallone and Schwarzenegger's very kind of public feud that uh, Stallone said, oh, my film Rambo 2 made more at the box office, I win. And Arnie was kind of like, look, in the long run, because of the jokes in mine, I think I'm going to, this film's going to outlast yours. And I would kind of agree. I think more people have fondness for Commando than they do Rambo Part 2, which, let's face it, hasn't aged greatly and is probably even more a product of 80s uh, Reaganism than Commando is. Well, we have to also point out that this movie is filled with so many great co-stars as well that this you know you think about rambo and like okay yeah there's the the major the colonel um richard krenna that comes and talks with him and i i'm charles napier is in there but it's just like okay i don't really recognize too many other you got stephen burkoff but in this one everybody down the line is somebody dan hedaya vernon wells david patrick kelly even Alyssa milano bill duke i mean there's very few of these baddies that i don't necessarily know who they are and if i don't know who they are i want to know who they are i mean the the guy that plays is it uh Henriquez, uh, that tall black guy with the interesting hairline and the long frizzy hair with the, the, uh, safari hat. I mean, what a look for this guy. He is amazing. And I love him and Sally, this kind of mutton Jeff thing that they have going on where he's like two heads taller than Sally and Sally with his, uh, just this womanizing little asshole. I absolutely love him. He was um, an actual Vietnam vet, the uh, um, Henri Case. I think he was a former Vietnam vet because when I spoke to David Patrick Kelly uh, for the book I wrote, I kind of asked about the partnership between them. And uh, when they made the film, it was just during the time when L.A. had its first kind of public parade to kind of honor the Vietnam vets because that hadn't happened beforehand. And apparently it was a, a very moving experience for the both of them. Going towards something else that could be considered mindless, the villains in this film, it feels very 80s video game beat em up because you've got all these different looking kind of like side bosses that he has to go handle before he goes and handles the main villain. The film has an interesting structure because he has to go and take out these other little characters before he goes after Vernon Wells. And so, you know, he has, they have him go deal with David Patrick Kelly and then Bill Duke. And then he goes and deals with Dan Hedaya. And then he gets to Vernon Wells as kind of the final big boss at the end. Again, it's playing to these sensibilities that maybe were, I would assume, I I know it was intentional from the way they wrote the script, but it feels, we were talking like he's a superhero. It also feels very video game esque in the way that the film progresses, because it's a very logical, well, he beats this guy, then he goes and beats this guy, and then he goes and beats this guy. No, now he's finally at the end. And I appreciate that because, again, it really resonates with a time and a place where you would go to the arcade, plunk down some quarters, and play a game that was a video game version of the movie in a side-scrolling beat-em-up, which, again, this movie kind of is in a way. Killing a bunch of people with wanton abandon, the guns never run out of ammo. You can do all sorts of crazy things. Playing to the sensibilities in a way that really is a personification of the 80s. 
I'm always reminded of Beverly Hills Cop when I'm watching the end of this movie, and I don't. It's the same place where the shootout okay, is. I, I was wondering no, if it was it's, the it's same the exact or similar. The same place that they filmed it. Well, and then you also have this idea of in Beverly Hills Cop, you've got Jonathan Banks's character and Stephen Burkhoff's character, and Victor Maitland is clearly the big bad, and Zach is his henchman, you know, like the main henchman. And I always find it interesting in Commando that the Dan Hedaya character is the one who should be calling the shots, but he gets killed before Bennett gets killed. Bennett essentially becomes the big baddie and is worse than Arius, even though Arius is the guy who is calling the shots and, you know, set up this whole thing. But Bennett, because of the betrayal, I suppose, and because of the connection that he has with Matrix, and because he also is more of an action person, he becomes the big baddie in this one. And it was always an interesting turn for me that he gets killed second and Hedea gets killed first. And Dan Hedea's character gets killed with almost zero fanfare when he dies, which I think is so telling of where the actual conflict of the film lies. It's also a trope that happens in Bond films, that the smarter bad guy, you know, that guy at the head gets killed off early, and then Bond still has to reckon with the henchman. So like in Spy Love Me, Stromberg dies first, and then Bond's still got to deal with Jaws. It, it, yeah, it, it kind of happens. But you're right, Chris, there is a very video game feel to this, and I could see that Galleria being one level to it. And there are just moments in this film that stick out for no good reason sometimes, like um, like the Radon Chong character. Notice that I didn't list her as far as being like some of the strong antagonists in this. Radon Chong, I'm not sure if I've ever seen her in anything where I'm just like, wow, she can really bring this together she she's a really good actress and in this movie she's so annoying for so long but i still i love this movie and i think i love her in it even though if this if i saw this today i don't know if i would be able to take her her character is intentionally the damsel in distress and her scream is oh man look i look it's look it's the 80s they weren't going out of their way to give female characters in action films anything to do other than play scared and I'm not going to make any excuses for it, because that's all it was. We've come a long way since then, thankfully. But it is very willy from Temple of Doom, which, again, admittedly, Temple of Doom is my favorite Indiana Jones film, but it's very willy of Temple of Doom. Just watching the things going on and screaming and then being given the opportunity to do something and doing it, but still just continuing to be obnoxious, even after there is kind of this assertion of, her ability to be part of the film, and then she retracts back into screaming and yelling. Her character kind of gets more to do than Willie. I mean, it's not much more, but, you know, she's a qualified pilot. She's one that flies Matrix out to the island. She's able to find out where Jenny is being held just by looking at the maps while Schwarzenegger just blankly stares at it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she frees him from the police van by, you know, it's a, it's a one-step-forward-one-step-back situation, the rocket launcher blows her backwards but i think they try and do more with her than would than other female characters in this sort of film as soon as she decides that she's going to help matrix then i'm like okay you know but before that when and rightly so she doesn't know if matrix is going to kill her what's going on you know she doesn't know who this Sally character is any of this stuff and she does the right thing when she's at the galleria and it's like hey this guy's you know really weird and he's trying to hurt me and stuff and sends these guards after him because she doesn't know who he is and i'm kind of glad that she resists a little bit 
I guess it's just the scream that gets me. But yeah, after she decides, okay, I'm going to be on your side, then she goes whole hog in, you know, um, trying to pretend that Sally's in the shower, um, this whole thing of, yeah, her using the rocket launcher, her flying the plane. I mean, she does have some agency. It's just she's so annoying at first, but kind of justified. My God, the way that David Patrick Kelly's character just will not stop harassing her. I just feel for this woman so much. Yeah, there is a very toxic masculinity vibe coming, uh, coming off, uh, Sully, but he is, uh, you know, it's almost like it's a short man syndrome. Is he just used to getting knocked back by women? And as soon as they reject him, he just goes full on monster. It's a fascinating look into, uh, toxic elements of masculinity in this film. And his death has to be probably two of my favorite one-liners <laughs> in this. <laughs> it's the greatest part of this movie. From the picking him up in the phone booth to the car to him holding him over the edge where you can totally see the wire connected to his ankle. <laughs> the carabiner is there in full in, in full effect. It his His death scene is amazing. It's just, it's everything you want from a character getting comeuppance. It really is. His scream is fantastic. Yeah, it's very satisfying. You remember, Sally, when I promised to kill you last? That's what made you, you did. I lied. What'd you do with Sally? I let him go. And, uh, yeah, they had to have that cable in there because uh, Mark L. Lester assumed that a man of Arnie's statue would just be able to hold uh, David Patrick Kelly there by the leg. And Arnie was like, I can't do that. I can't just hold a man, you know, with one arm by his leg. And Mark was like, but come on, you can lift twice his weight. And he was like, yeah, they're balanced. It's a dumbbell. This is like a flailing man. And you want me to do it over a cliff? It's like, no, I'm not doing that. For multiple takes. I can't even imagine being David Patrick Kelly in that situation, hanging upside down and having to deliver my lines. You know, come on. For my book, when I interviewed him about it, I did ask him what it was like. And he said uh, a lot of his blood vessels were going crazy because they were up there all night filming it up at Griffith Observatory. Um, but he had a leather tool belt on and the cable went under the trousers and attached to that. And apparently it was the same system that they used in uh, Westerns for when a cowboy shot and is just yanked off a horse. It's that kind of wire gimbal so basically it's just hooks around your waist and then if you're falling off a horse you're just suddenly tugged off as if you've been shot the one line that always sticks out to me in this film you know talking of one-liners is that security guard at the galleria he, that moment always just sticks out because it's just so bizarre that i think his character's name is biggs and the guy that plays him is usually a stunt coordinator though he's been an actor in uh it was a number of films but he's been a stunt coordinator in a ton of stuff and he's still doing that today attention all units emergency on the theater level suspect six foot two brown hair one gigantic motherfucker. It's such a weird line. It's it's a line delivery that is meant 
to elicit a reaction from the crowd. <laughs> that is the only point. Because it's not, you're one ugly motherfucker. It's like this weird, like, this guy, it's like he's never said the word motherfucker before <laughs> in his entire life. You're right. It is for the crowd to cheer. And there are so many of those crowd cheering lines in this movie. Uh, you know, the, the whole I lied, I let him go, all of those things. And, you know, watching this again last night, you can't help but talk along with the movie. I mean, I was constantly trying to say the one liners as they were being said. These guys eat too much red meat. <laughs> I mean, there's so much. I mean, again, like the this movie is good, but the fact that there's parts of the movie where they point out how insane the movie is, and a lot of that comes from Radon Chong's character, the fact that they're poking fun at themselves in the movie in a way that feels natural because of her character's involvement, I think, is what pushes the film even farther into classic territory for me because self-deprecation and self-reference inside of the movie that doesn't feel forced really makes me even go even further like man this movie gets what it is it totally understands what it is i think that's why it's endured so much it is that self-awareness that what it is at its core is something ridiculous and it's conscious of that and plays to that and that's why people love watching it so much the whole catharsis at the end with the just insane levels of violence it's really satisfying. I was so reminded of uh, Hot Shots Part 2 when I was rewatching it last night and that the kill count that they have going on in there where it's just like more than Rambo 2, more than Commando. <laughs> it felt like UHF where they have the scene with Weird Al pretending to be Rambo and they're making fun of it. But in this movie, they're playing it serious. Well, about as seriously as they can. But again, like it's just funny to see how they contrast it with we're taking this seriously versus we're not taking it seriously. I like the end of the movie, but that whole scene where he's just walking around this mansion with a light machine gun, just gunning people down. I think it's the weakest part of the movie for me. I didn't realize last night that I was watching the director's cut because I was so used to the regular cut. And then when I first watched the director's cut and seeing, because I don't think the the regular cut had the saw blades, right? Or the, the arm chop? No, it didn't. The whole bit in the garden shed, I think, is just in the director's cut. I'm so surprised there wasn't a line there. I'm so surprised there wasn't a punchline there. The, the director's cut, he does pick up the arm and hit him with it. Is that in the direct? No, I wish. No, I remember reading that they were talking about that. And maybe that didn't happen. In my mind, I always see that happening. He just picks up the guy's arm and just starts hitting him with it. And then it never happens. So I'm like, is this like an uncut version or have I got a cut version? I've got the director's cut, but whenever that doesn't happen, I keep thinking that I've seen it somewhere. Yeah, I seem to remember them talking about that. There was a, what was, was it, uh, Empire Online article where they were talking about that and that they wanted to do a line there. And I can't, can't remember what it was. Stop whining. I mean, the one-liners in this movie are almost always on point. Comista, like, I, I think that's probably one of my favorite ones, just because Arnold speaking Spanish doesn't work any more than you would think it would, and him using it as a one-liner when he's throwing knives at people, literally just throwing giant buoy knives at people, is, I mean, it's a sight to behold. He's throwing, you know, seven long-inch blades just by hand into dude's chest. Like, come on, like, 
So on that Empire Online, uh, D'Souza says, there was a great one-liner that didn't make it into the movie. Arnold and I had both heard this World War One story about a French officer who's having his arm cut off. Next to him is a guy with a bullet in his foot who's moaning and screaming. So the officer picks up his freshly amputated arm and slaps this guy in the face with it. So Arnold, while they were shooting the scene where he cuts off the guy's arm with the axe, suggested that they should slap him with it and say, quit whining. Stop whining. And then Lester says, it was discussed on set, but we all said, that's crazy. You're a commando. Why would you do that? In hindsight, it probably would have worked. I think it might have been a little too slap. Yeah, I definitely think it worked. We don't have anything to compare it to with like uh, like seeing like a dailies version of it or anything. So maybe not, but it just, it sounds slapstick. Almost, a, it, it's almost right there at the at the, the, the razor's edge of like, don't push it this far because you're going to lose me personally. I mean, there are parts of the film that I think I think international audiences play like slapstick, but I think U.S. audiences might just go, "Oh no, that's that's real life." Like when he goes to arm himself up, and then he looks for the switch underneath, and then the back wall slides, and there's just gun after gun. He picks up a rocket launcher and hand grenades. In you know the U.K., people are just laughing, going. Fucking Americans. Yeah, that's probably typical because that's honestly how we imagine most of you pick up guns. Can you pick up hand grenades in just a, a general gun store? Can you get a rocket launcher or is that ridiculous even by your levels? That's not even a store where you would buy guns. That's an Yeah, that, no, it's, it's like a, it's an army surplus store, isn't it? Best of my knowledge, having gone to army surplus stores, they don't sell guns in army surplus stores anywhere other than the movie universe. So it is ridiculous. It just plays as graphic realism outside the US. Yeah, it is completely unrealistic. You can't go buy rocket launchers as a civilian anywhere. I've... As you would hope. My headcanon for him going to that store, the surplus store, is always that's someone that he knows who has those? Because how did he know? That's always like one of my questions coming out of the film, is how did he know about those weapons? And I always just assume that, like, the person who owns the store is one of his buddies. And, like, they just keep those guns there for the purpose of blowing people up, which is what they get used for. So, Oh, that's interesting. So I always just assumed it's an army surplus store. And he just goes, come on, every army surplus store keeps the guns somewhere. I've just got to look around for the secret compartment button. Boom, there we go. Right, time to tool up. This is my own private stash. I've got some great stuff here. Heat seeking shoulder fired as fucking disposable. You could take out a jumbo jet with one of these monkeys. It's like the scene in Men in Black where it's like, here it is, and all the cabinets flip over, and there's just a bunch of guns everywhere. Show us the merchandise, you're gonna lose another head, Jeez. It reminds me of when Arnie was buying an Uzi 9mm at the pawn shop in Terminator. The 45 long slide with laser siding. It's a brand new, we just got them in. That's a good gun. Just touch the trigger, the beam comes on, and you put the red dot where you want the bullet to go. You can't miss. Anything else? Phased plasma rifle in the 40-watt range. Hey, just what you see, pal. The Uzi 9mm. You know your weapons, buddy. Any one of these is ideal for home defense. This is what we have learned in the movies. You can pick up any gun as quickly as possible. 
in in America. This is what we've all learned. That's how you make America great again. <laughs> Apparently By so. By having rocket launchers available to civilians at stores. Exactly. Don't try to make me wear a mask. I'll use my rocket launcher. We have to talk about the elephant in the room as far as the Matrix-Bennett relationship. I know Vernon Wells says, I was not playing this character as gay, and there's so many people that are just like, no, 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 he's not gay, but he's just, he's coded as gay. The way that he's dressed, the Freddie Mercury mustache, I mean, that chain link mesh tank top that he has on, and just the obsession with Matrix that he has, and the way that he's always got his switchblade out, which just seems like such a phallic symbol to me. I mean, it just feels really like there is a spurned homosexual relationship in this film. So I've got a, a few little tidbits about this, which you may or may not know, but Vernon Wells was a last-minute addition to the cast. There was another actor in the role of Bennett, but it was felt that compared to Arnie, he was just a lot slimmer and didn't look like a physical threat. So Vernon Wells was brought in at the last moment, and he's kind of said, you know, I wasn't in shape. You know, that's why I look a little bit roly-poly around the gut. But the costume was all there, ready for him, but it was based around the other actor. That's why it's a little bit tight in places. And as for the chainmail, apparently that is called uh, a stoker's vest. And apparently it's what people on ships would wear when they were shoving coal into the furnace. So it's made to look like chain mail. But if it was actual chain mail, it would have been 45 kilos in weight. So it's kind of like a fake stoker's vest. But if you don't know that, it does look like Bennett does have some sort of kink fetish. And, you know, most people just assume that because he really wants to stick it into Matrix, his knife. Arnold kills him by throwing a pipe through him. I don't think we should give this film too much credit for trying to be progressive. I just think it's a perfect storm of circumstances. I agree. I don't I don't think any of this was intentional at all. <laughs> at all. There's intentional and then there's what the audience reads. And I will say like I don't think that their intention was to make this some sort of spurn gay love interest type of thing. But I think that we just read that in the film. It just, whether they wanted to or not, that's how people see it. And I, I tend to be there with them, especially the way that Matrix is able to talk him into throwing away his gun and all that. And just Bennett just goes mad at the end of this film and just matrix is just able to manipulate him with like this weird logic until they finally have this big fight at the end i just want to pull a trigger put a knife in me and look me in the eye and see what's going on in there when you turn it that's what you want to do right John. come on let the girl go it's between you and me don't deprive yourself of some pleasure Come on, Bennett. Let's party. I can beat you. I don't need the girl. I don't need the girl! I don't need the gun, John. I can beat you. I don't need no gun! I gotta kill you now! Well, he's like one line away from saying, and then you can get on top of me and start to caress me slowly. I think my favorite line from Bennett is, I'm not going to shoot you between the eyes. I'm going to shoot you between the balls. <laughs> Which, again, if you're if you're looking for it, they're giving it to you big time. 
it's it's not Nightmare on Elm Street two levels of unintentional homosexuality because that movie I don't know how anyone could have unintentionally wrote that film the way that it's written, but this one just feels kind of like eh, whatever. I mean, if they see it that way, cool, but that's not our intention. This is not the first time this has happened with Vernon Wells, because when I talked to him, I was kind of brought up the fact that he seems to play very progressive bad guys, because I was like, in The Road Warrior, you know, your lover's killed at the beginning, and he was like, what are you talking about? That wasn't my lover. It was like, in the original script, it was a young boy that I had adopted, and I was raising him to be my heir and follower, but then all that was kind of cut out, and I was like, oh... Because everyone just assumes it's your lover, and then when he's killed, you're very upset about it. And he's like, yeah, I know, and for years that really upset me because I was a little less progressive than I am now. And then I just, you know, learned to deal with it. And yeah, that's just what people take away. But apparently that was not the intention at all going into the film. And I kind of found that really interesting that, you know, for many people, he's just seen as these quasi-gay bad guys. And in both situations that was never meant to be the case yeah i think the chaps helps that impression in road warrior (laughs) (laughs) yeah the assless chaps he might need to speak to his costume designer a little bit more maybe he needs to step back you know who doesn't need to speak to their costume designer bill duke bill duke that man can wear a suit there's part of me that wishes bill duke was the main villain of the movie yeah, sometimes I forget that he's in this. I mean, he might be one of the first faces that we see in the movie, but it's like, oh, wh- where is he at again? And just that he's he is so not involved with Valverde, and that he dies kind of unceremoniously, which I always you know find kind of sad. I mean, there's that great fight, and I love the fight scene that he and Arnold have, but when he gets impaled, another impalement death, maybe there is a theme to this, I'm just like, oh man, I really wish he would have been around for a little bit longer. Well, because him and Arnold have some of the best one-line trading <laughs> in, the, in the movie. This Green Beret is going to kick your ass. <laughs> I eat green berets for breakfast. And right now, I'm very hungry. I can't believe this macho bullshit. Well, yeah, if there's anybody who I think could take Arnold in the movie, it would be Bill Duke, because he's built like a brick shit house. Right, he's a big dude. Predator hadn't been made at this point, but, you know, he is like 6'2", and, you know, height-wise, him and Arnie are the same, and, you know, he, he he's a big guy, yeah, and probably more in shape than Vernon Wells was at that point. Yeah, they might have rethought their casting a little bit. Yeah, I don't maybe, know. But, you know, what could have been? At least we have them in Predator, you know, oiled up and sweaty, being manly. Shaving himself. All I really wanted from Dan Hedaya was just Dan Hedaya's shirt to be more open because there is no man hairier in Hollywood <laughs> than Dan Hedaya. Zero men in Hollywood are as hairy as Dan Hedaya. Once Robin Williams passed away, Dan Hedaya took the trophy. The fact that they have Dan Hedaya attempting to do a kind of Hispanic Latino accent. It's a Valverde accent. Yeah, sure it is. Is that what we're going with? It's hilariously bad, but again, like it feeds into my expectations of the movie. Yeah, I love Dan Hedaya, and I just don't think he ever gets nearly enough credit. He has just been so great in so many things. I've been trying to get an interview with him for years because I'd love to talk to him about Running Scared. It's just like any excuse I can get to talk about that movie, I'm going to. The thing is, whenever he comes on screen, he just looks like Nick Tortelli when he was in Cheers. He's that kind of sweaty and greasy. Uh, It's just – and it – 
it's not the same accent, but it's the same dubious type of accent. And you're kind of like, you are one nudge into just going on full Nick Tortelli in this. So I want to talk a little bit about the script. I was looking for some of the early drafts of this, and I know that Jeff Loeb gets credit for this, as well as Matthew Wiseman for doing the story. And I know that Jeff Loeb has said that it was originally written about an Israeli commando, and it was supposed to be really serious. And then D'Souza comes in and just brings his magic to it. And I haven't found that first D'Souza draft. I've only found it for auction for $850 out on eBay. (laughs) What the fuck are you doing? $850. But they did post some screenshots of the screenplay. And so I was going through and looking at the first few pages, the last few pages. And there's a lot of similarities between that, which was dated, I want to say March 2nd. 1985, and then the final draft, which is just a few weeks later, April 18th, 1985, that version that I found, it doesn't have D'Souza's name on it at all. It doesn't have Loeb, it doesn't have Wiseman, it doesn't have D'Souza, it just has Richard Tuggle's name on it. And I know that Tuggle didn't write this, so it would have been revisions by Tuggle, but it's pretty much, I think, D'Souza's work, you know? Is this kind of like one of those cases where you just have a script and then a new star comes in and you just completely retool it. Kind of like how Beverly Hills Cop was written for Stallone. And then when you get Eddie Murphy, it's like, all right, what we've got for Stallone is not going to work for Eddie Murphy. So you just take the bare bones and then just mold it around your lead actor. Because D'Souza's always kind of like, you know, I sit down with Arnie and we kind of add in one-liners where we can. So it's kind of like playing up to that public persona of what people have come to see you for, which is that bang, bang, one-liner. Those are all in that final draft. I mean, it is so close to what we have in the shooting, uh, the actual version that we see. The biggest difference is what D'Souza has already gone on the record talking about, and that we'll hear him talk about in a few minutes here, which is the end of the film and why we get that weird Bill Paxton cameo. I always wondered, like, I know Bill Paxton, you know, he's been in movies for, or was in movies for a long time before he was in Aliens or anything else that gave him, like, his big break. By that time, by 1985, it's like, I think Paxton was already a known quantity, so it's just weird when he shows up to tell Radon Chong that the plane is needs to turn around because they're in a test area. So that whole idea of them having this major fight on this island where it's being bombed, I mean, it just, it sounds like a fantastic idea. I think they did the right thing with the way that they ended it, but... You know, it's always one of those, like, why the hell did Bill Paxton show up in this movie? Because he was in Terminator, right? I mean, he just needs to be in every Arnold movie. Hey, I think this guy's a couple cans short of a six-pack. I do remember reading that the final fight between Bennett and Matrix was meant to take place on the beach with kind of shelling going off around them. And I think it was just, you know, a costing issue that it ends up being in the basement of wherever they filmed it. It also makes sense because... You have everybody on that island, and so, like, Cindy's still over there. The Ray Don Chong character is still over there. So, for her to end up with Matrix at the end, she has to somehow get from 
Valverde over to that island that's being shelled. So it's like, okay, how is that happening? So it felt more natural to me that everybody is just in that one location. And then when Kirby shows up and they have their exchange at the end, which is, again, 100% quotable, I mean, that makes sense that everything just happens in that one location rather than oh, I was just over at Valverde, John, um, and you just left bodies for us. I mean, it just didn't feel natural. One of the things about this movie, the logic of this movie that cracks me up every time, and it goes back to the ending, is in between Dan Hedaya's character and and Vernon Wells's character, there seems to be this inherent like logical inevitability that John Matrix is not going to do the job that they're asking him to do, and that they know he's coming. And in movie logic... Or in reality logic, why would you go and Shanghai the guy who is this crazy ex-military special forces guy who you know is going to not do what you ask him to do? Why would you go and get that guy? Because you know he's just going to come and kill you. They have that like logic in their head like he's coming. It's like you're telling me he's coming to kill you, but you want him to go do something else. He's coming to get us. Like what? There is that throwaway line where they're like, you're the only guy who can get close to the Presidente because you've saved his life. You know, it's really tenuous about why they need him in particular. They know he's going to come to the Island, even though that's not the intention. They accept that. It's like, he's coming. Well, he's coming to do the job. It's not like a, you know, high noon or something where it's like, Oh my God, he's going to be here. And, T-minus 10 hours to kill us. He's going to be here in T-minus 10 hours to do the job, is what they think. Yeah, exactly, because they think he's on the plane. They don't know he's out and about, because it's not until the plane lands and the people find their colleague with his broken neck that they realize he's escaped. And then when they find out, they're like, oh, killed the daughter. Because that's why the first thing that Sully does when he sees Matrix is, give me a quarter, I need to go make a phone call, which is just such a dated line now. Yeah, no, Matrix manages to cover his tracks just up until that point, and by that point, he's on the island, and it's literally like, can he get to Jenny before they uh, they kill her? But she's self-sufficient. Look at that. She escapes, because if not for her own self-sufficiency, she would have been dead. Yeah, yeah. Her father would have failed her <laughs> if it wasn't for her. Then it would have suddenly turned into Commando 2. But we'll talk about that after we take a break. So let's go ahead and take a break, play a pair of interviews. First, we'll hear from screenwriter Stephen E. D'Souza, and then we'll hear from Richard Tuggle, who was almost the director of Commando. We'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files, a family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Hi there, faithful Projection Booth listener, Chris Stashew here. If you're looking for even more deep-dive film discussion, both old and new, on and off the cinematic beaten path, check out the Culture Cast. Every episode, I'm joined by a different guest as we traverse the cinema landscape, talking about not only our monthly theme, but also some of the year's biggest films. I'm even joined by the host of the Projection Booth, the one and only Mike White. So if you want to listen to even more conversations on film, head on over to CultureCast.com or find it on all Podcatchers, both Android and iOS. Do you 
like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. What was your first meeting with Arnold Schwarzenegger like? My first meeting with Arnold Schwarzenegger was the day that uh, we did Joel Silver and I went and reached him Commando. It was on like super short notice. The whole history of Commando um, is that uh, Barry Diller, uh, he became head of Fox in uh, 1985. I guess it's what, at the very beginning of 1985, you could Google it. Within like a week of him getting this job, he called Larry Gordon in, who was a producer on the lot, who I already done uh, uh, work with in television and on the movie 48 Hours, and said, listen, I uh, ran into this guy Schwarzenegger at a party over the weekend, and he's uh, sort of nothing like uh, the Terminator or, or uh, Conan. He's uh, charming and funny. I think if you could find the right vehicle for him, you got to get some stuff in the pipeline. Fox is not making enough movies. That's why they brought me in here. And uh, if you can find the right vehicle for him and, and make it for $10 million, I'll immediately greenlight it. So this conversation with, uh, with Larry Gordon was uh, probably midweek, and he uh, called me in and Joel Silver and uh, a couple of his development executives and re- you know, relayed this conversation uh, and said, let's uh, find something that we can put together quickly because a writer's strike is coming up. So they got a hold of five scripts that were gathering dust in the uh, Fox archives. They didn't ask for rom-coms. They didn't ask for comedies. They said, do we have any action movies that for whatever reason – like got back burned. Over the next following weekend, all the people involved read all five scripts. And unanimously on Monday, everybody said the script called Commando is probably the closest to becoming a Schwarzenegger vehicle, although it has a lot of problems, starting with the hero is an Israeli ex-Mossad agent. Please some modifications for Schwarzenegger. Also, the script was uh, very much more reality-based. Like a John Grisham, like, you know, reality uh, based real politic. The writers, uh, maybe they were new to California because at a point in the story where the hero uh, realizes he has to fight the villains, uh, he goes to the supermarket like Reese did in uh, Terminator and he buys sort of random household products and manufactures weapons. But in California, you just go to the Army Navy store and buy all the guns you want, you know. And the, uh, he had a wife and child and they weren't kidnapped until page 45. So 
Anyway, I go in and I go, here's the problem. He can't be a Mossad agent. Uh, I would lose the wife and keep the kid. We got to get the show rolling quicker, bada, bada, bing. And, you know, we have Schwarzenegger here. We don't have Kevin Costner. Like, the hero has got to do these, like, you know, Schwarzenegger-esque things. So they say, great, uh, you're gonna, you and Joel are going to see Arnold at 1 o'clock. And I go, whoa, wait a minute. I just, just read the book. I have my notes. I have my critique. I don't have the new, the fixes. He says, well, you'll, you'll think of it on the car on the way over. Because remember, I had worked with these guys in television where, you know, you're doing a one-hour show every 10 days, you know, and so and you have to, like, you know, break story really quickly. So they'll, you'll solve it on the car. So we go over to Schwarzenegger's office. You know, he's got giant bodybuilding posters of him, and he's got the statue of the Terminator, you know, a life-size Terminator, and it's uh, a whole scene. You know how um, a lot of us, a lot of people have their photographs on their desk so you can look at your loved ones. You know, your wife and kids and stuff. He has that. But he has one picture turned around. Right, I sit in the chair directly opposite his desk. So the chair he has, there's one picture that is facing any visitor, which is a photograph of his father in a German uniform with a German shepherd lunging at the camera. It's blurry with his teeth bared. So this is probably too like, you know, this is probably a psychological thing that anybody who sits in that chair, almost 90 percent of them had. A, had remember, this is 1985, right? Anybody who sits in that chair had a parent in World War Two. So I said, I have a picture just like that, except my father's in a different uniform. So uh, uh, that was the right response, apparently. He chuckled. I now proceed to tell him the story of Commando pretty much as the movie became in very broad strokes, not the version of the script, which we did not send him because it was so different than what he would want to do. So I'm telling the story. At one point, I say, and then you say, remember, Sony, when I said it to you last? I lied. And now he gives me a big look, and I realize, oh, my God, I just slipped into my cocktail party Schwarzenegger impression, which I've been doing for a couple of years. So as he scowled at me, I get, I said, Arnold, I do all the greats. I added you to Cary Grant, Jimmy Cagney. Do you want to hear some of the others? He says, that's all right. That passed. Keep going. I'm, so anyway, I tell the whole story. And after I tell the story, he said, he sits for a moment and goes, um, I like this. I am, I am not a robot from the future, a caveman from the past. I'm very close. I'm having a family. It's a part Sean Vane could play. I do this picture. And we shake hands. So now we get in the car. And when we head back from um, Venice, which is where his office was, to um, Fox in the Valley. And uh, this is 1985, remember. So Joel makes a phone call. At that time, a car radio was the same as a boat radio. In fact, you had to make a phone call. You had to go through the marine operator. So you press the button. And they go, San Pedro marine operator. What is your emergency? Are you sinking? No, no, no. We're in a car. Can you connect us to a landline? So we call Larry Gordon. We said, Arnold is in. He said, okay, I'll have everybody ready for you. So I'm going, who's everybody? I go back in there. He has a guy from the production department and a stenographer. And they say, tell us what you told Arnold. Now, what I did with Arnold was what I did in television. Remember, I had worked my way up the food chain from story editor to so to. Uh, uh, associate producer to supervising producer to executive producer at Knight Rider before I went over to got into the movie business, went over to uh, uh, to Fox and changed studios from Universal. And what you would do in television, you'd break a story, you would sort of in your mind guesstimate some superficial production issues to get a head start so that some people are thinking before they actually get the script. So I would so I start out saying, okay, the opening scene is three mysterious whackings. We don't know who these people are. They get murdered in all kinds of crazy ways. 
could be back a lot, could be practical, meaning the real world, five pages for the three killings. Then I say, okay, now we visit Arnold and his daughter in retirement, probably a practical location somewhere in the zone, meaning where you can film in the Los Angeles area without putting people in hotels. Seven-page sequence, they come in, they warn him, the helicopter, bad guys, fighting, 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 bada, bada, big boom. And I go on like this, telling it like this, the locations, who the characters are in each scene, and it probably takes me longer to tell the story than I did to Arnold because I'm going into more detail. So probably about an hour of telling the story, acting it out, I say the end. So uh, Larry Gordon says to the stenographer, how many pages is that? And she goes, it's 105 pages. He said, fine, type that up and distribute that memo. Steve, start writing. Don't change any sets unless you give us a heads up. And then he turns to the head of production to start building those sets because the movie's greenlit now, right? Because Arnold said he's in and we know that this movie is going to cost because coming out of television, what I'm describing, I know it can be done for $10 million. I go off and I start writing the script, uh, which is a page one rewrite. I mean, there, there's literally like not a single page that, that, that uh, wasn't changed from the prior script. To, 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 to further go how insane this is, uh, there's a writer's strike that started like May 5th. So this is uh, like March or April. I forget what this is. So I basically write this script in like like three weeks. And then I turn it in and then they give me notes and like uh, there's got locations and we can't get this. So change, change that. Just responding my imagination to the real world. And finally, they get, OK, we're done. This is it. Lock the script. And this is the day of the writer's strike that all writing in Hollywood has to stop. And what you do is anything that's in the pipeline has to be sent over to the Writers Guild and sealed in an envelope like in a legal way with a little like the thing across the across the flap that hasn't been opened to make sure there is no uh, writing during the strike. So by this time, I said, listen, I get, uh, I said, let me just write at home. Uh, I'm losing like 90 minutes coming over here to, to Fox. And like, you know, uh, the strike is looming. So I've been working at home now the past like week. And they send, so they're sending hot and cold messengers. No, this is early. This is early. Not everybody hasn't committed to fax machines. So now they say, okay, we'll send a message to your house to take the script to the Writers Guild so it can be registered. So they have a guy come to my house. I say, I'll be done around noon. Of course, I fall behind. The studio gives me some last-minute notes. Five o'clock is the drop-dead date. It has to be sealed and stamped by a lawyer at the Writers Guild in Beverly Hills. So now it's around uh, three o'clock. I'm done. I press print. And the printer starts going, because it's 1985, right? I have a dot matrix printer. And so like, I time the first page, and I go, 107 pages. It grew to two pages. 107 pages times like uh, uh, a minute and 10 seconds. I'm fucked, right? So now the, I, I'm in a panic. I realize there's no way this is going to come out of the printer in time for this guy to get to Beverly Hills. In fact, it won't come out of the printer till like 5.30, the last page. So I start calling the, the writer's guild on the phone, and I uh, call up the strike headquarters, and I say, listen, can I register uh, a uh, computer file? And they go, huh, what? Huh? They have no idea what I'm talking about. 1985, remember? So I say, listen, can you uh, get me somebody in legal? So they connect somebody in the strike department with somebody in the legal department. And I say, can you explain to the strike department that computer files have a date and time stamp built into them? Yeah, absolutely. You can tell when a computer file is created. It's like baked into the program. It's great. Uh, okay, now um, it's okay then. Will you tell the strike department? He says, yes, you can accept an electronic file. And they say, okay, uh, how do we get it? 
And I said, do you have a bulletin board? Remember, there's no internet yet. I mean, there's internet, but it's only being used by rocket science. And they say, no, we don't have a writer's skill bulletin board. So they were talking about that, but uh, who would use that? We don't know. So now I'm going crazy at the clock. It's now like, you know, it's like uh, 4.10. I got till 5 o'clock. So I say, give me, give me uh, the residuals department. They got to use computers because they keep track of movies taken all over the world, you know. So I get somebody in the residuals department. They say, yeah, we have a modem. Right, and we can, and we do, we do all that stuff. Uh, but uh, we, but it's like twenty six hundred modem. But anyway, between the legal department and the um, accounting department that does residuals, uh, they come to a legal determination that the strike the strike office can accept not a manuscript from me, but a five and a quarter inch floppy. So I stop at that moment. I copy the file over to a five and a quarter inch floppy. Was it five and a quarter, five and a half? I can't remember. I think it was five and a quarter. The little hard ones were, were three, three and a half. I can't remember anymore. So I copied through a floppy. I put it in an envelope, and it gets over there with two minutes to spare. And that's May 5th of 1985. The movie was out October 9th. And we started filming the following Monday. So May 5th, so I just do the math, you know, like it's sort of staggering. By August, September, so like, you know, to like shoot, score, mix, edit, and post the movie in five months, you know, and it just shows you what you can do when you're motivated. Since there was a writer's strike going on, were you allowed to even be on set or give any input after it had started filming? As long as writing stopped, it's okay. I was on the set a great deal. Also, you're allowed to make changes. There's a thing called A to H changes. In other words, during the strike, there's uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, eight circumstances in which you can do some changing. So, like, if an actor is sick, you can rewrite a scene to, 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 like, have a different person play that role. Uh, if it rains and you can't do the picnic scene, you could rewrite it for a restaurant, and now you have to add the maitre d and the waiter. Whereas the picnic scene, you just had ants or a frisbee coming by. But the script hardly changed at all from what we turned in on that day. The biggest change was uh, the end of the movie. Uh, you may recall a lot of people noticed in the film that um, uh, the actor uh, who, who was famous for uh, uh, Aliens, uh, Bill Paxton. Uh, you know, we, we lost him, a very young, uh, you know, terrific guy, talented writer, director, all-around guy, wonderful person. And one of his first roles is in Commando. At one point when Ray Don Sean is flying the airplane to the island, uh, they get interrupted. He says, attention, unidentified aircraft, attention, unidentified aircraft. You are flying over the Channel Island uh, Naval Gunnery Range. This is a restricted area. Now, that was a real thing. The U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps, who are based uh, in, in San Diego, and then there's the Marine Corps bases halfway between San Diego and Los Angeles, they used the Channel Islands for practice. And there was one island, which the government owned, called Santa Cruz Island, which they would bomb and land, do amphibious landings on and all that kind of like war games. Uh, Santa Catalina is inhabited. That's well known. And there's several other islands in there that, that are a national park. So that was the setup, as we say in the movie business, laying some story pipe planting a seed of the climax of the movie, which in the context of everyone being a former, you know, special forces or commando guy at the end of the movie, uh, when, uh, Arnold shows up, Bennett grabbed the little girl and ran away with her. But, but as written, he jumped in a boat, a speedboat, and fled the Island. Arnold jumped in another boat in pursuit. They exchanged gunfire. One of Arnold's bullets hits the fuel line and with the motor dying, Bennett pulls into the next island over. Arnold follows. You notice as he pulls into the island that there's these private Ryan 
concrete giant jacks, you know, like the kids play with jacks, you know, and barbed wire, Mm -hmm. which they indeed had on this island because it was a practice zone. So as they start to confront each other, all of a sudden, this, the uh, the naval barrage and maneuvers begins, and artillery shells start coming in on the island. So the final scene was going to be the two of them having a knife fight in essentially a World War II battlefield. Brilliant planning on my part, and everyone at the studio loved the idea. Anyway, you know, by this time, you know, the movie is all but wrapped, and I'm off on the next picture. I'm on a location scout, having hit it off so well with Arnold. I had already pitched him command, uh, the running man, and he was going to do that soon. So I'm up in Canada on a location scout. At that time, we thought the running man would shoot in Canada. And I'm just about to get into the car to go look at a location. When I get the phone call in my hotel room, it's Joel Silver. He says, listen, I need you uh, to dictate a scene. I go, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you know these, the, the scene at the end of the movie where they have that fight on the island? We've got to make a change on it. I said, uh, what kind of change? He says, it's not on an island anymore. It's in a basement. And I go, what are you talking about? He said, I didn't tell you this before. I didn't know it was going to have this impact. But like about three weeks ago, our director, Mark Lester, saw a sneak preview of Rambo. And he comes out of it and says, Stallone kills a million guys in this movie. We have to kill more guys than Stallone. So the scene that you wrote where... Arnold engages with General Arius's security force in exile, which was filmed at the same place the climax of Beverly Hills Cop was filmed. It's that a house that used to belong to Harold Lloyd. He had a big estate. Remember Beverly Hills Cop? They, they, uh, uh, Rosewood and uh, Eddie Murphy go to Taggart. Yeah, uh, they, they uh, wrote, they, they all go there and they fight like about 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 ten or eleven bad guys. You know, the kind of guys you would have as, like, you know, bodyguards if you were, uh, you know, a mafia figure or something, right? They've now escalated this that he fights, like, literally 100 guys. And because that was beyond what was written, instead of being there for, like, that sequence for, like, two days, they spent, like, seven days there. So now we are out of money, and we cannot stage this island scene. All our money, all our explosions that were going to be here— all the money for remember how many explosions go off at that garden? All the bullets, all the stuff, and plus the money to travel out to an island or to a beach. It's all gone. So I said, uh, well, when are you shooting this? He said, we're shooting this today. I said, how do you have the money to build a basement set and, to, and you can't like, take a boat to, to, to Catalina? He says, it's not a set. It's the basement of the Fox main building. This is how desperate we are. It's like a student's film. like you, you know. And I go, you're shooting your own office? You already shot my house because the opening scene of the whacking in the driveway, that's my house. I'll come back to that now. Like a real movie is being shot like like your student films. So now I say, uh, this is so, sort of, this is pre-smartphone. So I say, all right, um, describe the room. So now he gives the phone to an assistant and she is walking around. She's in the basement, like on a, on a, on a phone with a cord. That they ran a cord, they got somebody to run a cord down this basement, <laughs> uh, an extension cord. She says, "Okay, there's steps. There's a an upper level. There's a grill. There's a generator. There's a, a big boiler." Uh, so I wrote, I changed the existing dialogue to fit like being in a basement. So where it says he grabs a little girl, jumps in a boat, he grabs a little girl and runs down steps. Is what it is. And I wrote like four or five different ways to kill Bennett based on what was in the basement, like throwing him off the balcony. He says, watch that first step. Or, or uh, uh, he kills him on the electrical thing. 
He says, kind of a shock to the system. They kept that one anyway. Anyway, I made like five or six like ways to kill him, and they ended up using the two of of like the deciding the electricity would not kill him, just stun him. And then let out some steam in it. So that's how crazy that got improvised at the end. How my house came to be in the picture. Uh, the pictures already started. We're shooting. I would go to the set sometimes. Uh, like I went to this with the gallery. I had spent so much time in that gallery. That's the same gallery from the song um, Valley Girl. And I had like had you know I, my daughter would have sleepovers. I had so much time like schlepping these teenage girls over there and then picking them up. I hated that place, so I wanted to be there the day we destroyed it. I get a phone call and they say, "Listen, uh, can we film a couple scenes at your house?" And I go. What are you serious, Joel? Really? I mean, I know it's a whole budget movie. He says, "Listen, smartass, you wrote this opening scene where a guy gets killed by taking out his garbage, and the uh, location guys and the director came to me and said they can't find anything that works because in order to make a quick getaway with a garbage truck, you can't make a K, K- turn. You know, the whole point of the scene, the quick whacking escape, it's never going to work. It's like turning around an aircraft carrier. It only works in a cul-de-sac, so they can just keep going in the same direction and get out of there." So I realized as soon as they said that to be you're riding your own driveway because you have that long driveway, you know, which, of course, I wait till the last minute. I hear the trucks. I go, you know, and I'm always running. I don't have the cat litter, but I'm like running down the driveway. So we want to film at your house. OK. And while we're at it, we're going to do the Vietnam flashback because you have that big tropical backyard. Because in the original script, at one point, Arnold is thinking back to why are my guys getting killed? What's the connection? And there was a sequence that was going to be in black and white with kind of jerky stop motion, sort of like Ken Burns, the Civil War. So it was going to be still photographs, which were going to be like rapidly taken, click, 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 click. So it, it had kind of a newsreel memory. So we filmed that in my backyard as well. But after the, this is the very beginning of the shoot. This is the first week of shoot. But after about the first week of filming, they fired the original guy who played Bennett. And he was filmed at my house in this flashback sequence. So that had to be thrown out of the movie altogether. Uh, I actually have a photograph of everybody in my in my backyard, uh, and you can see the original Bennett in that. So this this tells how crazy you know, like a picture's done racing uh, on a limited budget, uh, racing the writers' guild strike. How you end up like you know, next thing you know, you're like putting your your. He says, "Well, we'll need your dog will be the attack dog." Yeah, but it's uh, but it's but it's a, a Yorkie. Well, well, we'll put the camera closer to it. Who is the uh, original Bennett? I'm pretty sure it was uh, Wings Hauser. There's a father and son, both named Hauser. I think it was, I think it was, the, the, I think it was Wings Hauser. Okay, I, it's either Coles or Wings, uh, whichever is, is the elder. How was Vernon Wells? Uh, had he auditioned before and they just brought him back, or what was the story? I don't know if he was ever under consideration, but when they wanted to hit him, they called him. He said, we need you here on a plane immediately. And he's down there in you know, Australia, like knocking back Foster's and throwing shrimp on the barbie, so he was really out of shape. And so he looks somewhat out of shape, and that's why in the final knife fight, he wounds Arnold. Because like he just it, had he been in his road warrior shape, he would not have had to do, had, had to have done that. But I think that was the reason to make it uh, to, that uh, to make it like a little, a little more feasible. But that wardrobe was picked for for Hauser. They, 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 so it wasn't like somebody said, "Oh, because he has a mustache, he looks like Freddie Mercury. Let's go with the violent Freddie Mercury." Um, uh, Hauser did not have a mustache, and that wardrobe was picked out for him. So there was no the Freddie Mercury resemblance was c- complete accident. There was also a thing like. Uh, Oh, uh, uh, there was a whole gay thing going on because he looked like Freddie Mercury he was in leather. But actually, there was a uh, because the uh, Vietnam flashback was uh, dropped out. And what happened? At one point, he explained to Ray Don Chong why this guy had turned on him, and that was in coming out of the flashback. 
and there was a backstory that that uh, Bennett blamed Arnold for his wife's death. That he had an enemy's wife, and uh, they got a tip that um, uh, there was going to be something going to happen, and we have to go back and protect my wife's family. But they had to complete the mission first, and he went. He said, "Don't worry, we'll have plenty of time." And they got delayed, and when they got back, the wife had been killed because her husband was uh, an American soldier. So there was no doubt that Bennett was straight. But with the white, with the wife being written out of the movie and the combination of the wardrobe, uh, people have put this whole uh, the frustrated uh, lover. He actually he loved Arnold, and that's why he wanted to kill him. But uh, you know, all the clues that point people in that direction, uh, we stumbled into by accident. This movie has got some of the best Arnold one-liners out there. And you're already making fun of the Arnold one-liners with Radon Chong's one-liners. It was great. She sort of takes takes the edge off it and uh, mitigates it. So, like, we're sort of, uh, you know, winking at our own thing. And I think that's one of the reasons the movie has held up very well. Uh, at the time, when they were, they were, it was out almost simultaneously with uh, Rambo, Arnold predicted, he said, in the long run, uh, my film is good, the, the one people are going to remember. He said, 20, 30 years from now. And he was absolutely right. Commando has this, like, has this fan favorite reputation now, uh, which Rambo does not, because Rambo was trapped into its, the seriousness of its own intentions and therefore seems to be more of a cultural artifact, you know, uh, of that era. Whereas uh, we we're sort of uh, having our cake and eating it too, in that, you know, we sort of know it's kind of preposterous. Speaking of having a long legacy, have you ever seen the uh, the Russian or uh, Bollywood remakes? Yeah, I know. I've seen the Russian one. It's a complete copy. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. They even have the girl called Jenny. Well, you know, there's no copyrights there. There's also something very funny that somebody has done of uh, – they do the musical versions of Arnold's movie. There's a couple of guys. Have you seen those? Oh, yeah, the Kaplan Brothers, I think. Yeah, yeah. So they did like the – they did uh, – I don't know if they – I think they did Commando, but I know they did Predator. And they did The Running Man, which is great. He says, fuck you, The Hunger Games. That one that's called. Fuck you, The Hunger Games. I did it first, you know, and so on if you've seen that one. It's such an amazing cast. I mean, I can't believe looking back at this to see just how everybody is somebody. I mean, you know, everybody is amazing, like David Patrick Kelly and uh, Bill Duke, Dan Hedaya. Dan Hedaya just just chomping at that accent. It's fantastic. It's a good group. Uh, David Patrick Kelly, we, we came and he said, we're giving you the same – we're giving you a briefcase full of money again because he was running around with a briefcase full of money in um, 48 hours as well. He's the brief, briefcase running guy. Was there ever talk of doing a sequel to Commando? Not even was there talk of being a sequel, but I wrote a sequel to it. And then um, about a year later, when Ar- they thought Arnold was about to do it, Frank Darabont made some changes. So it's pretty good providence, a script by me and Frank Darabont. What happened was I think Arnold got busy or he got pre- what, he, he got priced out of it. He wanted, Whatever reason, it never, got, it never got made. Recently, he's talking about doing sequels to some of his movies, so it could still happen. Although um, it, it, the, uh, in the sequel, the premise was – that uh, as a result of his notoriety, because certainly the the uh, path of destruction and the gunfight in an island just off the California coast would have uh, you know made been newsworthy. As a result of his uh, fame, he became uh, a uh, security consultant, Arnold's character. Uh, remember, we said that that uh, Ray and Sean mentioned he's going to night school, but we never said what for. So we decided he was going to night school to be a lawyer. So in the sequel, she's a lawyer for this big company, and she gets Arnold the job of being the security consultant for the company. Anyway, it turns out that uh, the company is a front, and they're like doing like uh, you know uh, illegal arms shipments, like uh, you know using their 
their facilities around the world. So when Arnold is about to expose them, the villains kidnap both his daughter and Ray Dawn Chong and lock them in the building. And in, during the course of the movie, running up to the end of the movie, Arnold has made the building attack-proof and has hired and auditioned the, the meanest mercenaries in the world. We've seen him hire them and train them. So now he has to outwit all the security features and the team that he hired. So somehow, because of the, I guess, building being involved, Arnold trying to break into a building that's full of tough mercenaries, this got morphed into a popular legend that I'm always debunking, that Die Hard is the Commando sequel script, but I just crossed out the name of Matrix and put it in McLean. And it's not true. Die Hard is based on a novel called Nothing Lasts Forever, which was, you know, so, but I, I can't tell you how many times uh, I get asked this question, and every time it reappears on IMDb, like, you know, I try and correct it, but you can't go, go in chat rooms on IMDb anymore. So let this be the official record that no, Commando 2 did not become Die Hard. Last time we spoke, you were talking about a project you were working on related to uh, Gulliver's Travels. How is that going? That is a famously uh, almost made uh, project of mine. It's almost happened uh, several times. Uh, literally right now, uh, I, I can't go into detail. Literally right now, it's under consideration at a uh, at a major uh, a major production company. So it, the uh, the fifth time may be the charm. I think this is the fifth time it almost happened. I think what it what it is is that the the, the first presumption most people have when they hear something that Gulliver's Travels is uh, not again. Or you know, it's kind of a silly kid story, uh, whereas actually the original material, which most people have not read, most people have read like an adulterated children's version with illustrations. The original material is very dark and very violent and very twisted. So, for example, uh, in the original material, he goes to uh, nine imaginary lands and Japan. Now, except everybody remembers the Lilliputians, the little tiny people, and the giants, the Brobdingnagians. Um, because the kids' book you had from Golden Books that was taken down from the actual original uh, 18th century novel just has those two lands. They skip all the other places. The other places are normal-sized lands, but they're weird and strange. Um, there's one place where a guy is an army of the resurrected dead. So I mean, it's like totally like The Walking Dead, right? Right? His army is all dead people. There's another place where people uh, never die, but they sort of rot away till they're like you know blobs of protoplasm crawling along. They live forever, but they never die. So they deteriorate. So there's just crazy, wacky stuff. Here's, I'll give you an example. Everybody remembers from your children's version or the previous movie versions that the Lilliputians tie Gulliver down. Do you know why they tie him down? It's in the book. You know, why they want, you know what the Lilliputians tie him down for? Uh, was this one after he put out the fire by urinating into the princess's castle? No, no. They want to blind him the way Ulysses blind the, the, the Cyclops with, like a, with a log, flaming log. And while they're at it, castrate him because it's friggin' Godzilla. Everybody remembers, if you have the children's version, that the princess in the in the land of the giants keeps him in a little dollhouse and treats him as a pet. And there's an illustration in probably one of the 1920, 1930 versions of the book that got, you know, endlessly reprinted of this cute little princess with her, you know, resting her face on her chin, looking at Gulliver in the little dollhouse. But in the book, She's not like six, seven years old. She's a teenager, and she takes she and her handmaidens take Gulliver into the bathtub, and they use him as a human dildo. <laughs> this is in the book. Well, he doesn't say they use me like a friggin' dildo. He says, "Dear reader, if I could tell you the indignities that these giant 
wenches subjected me to and the bodily orifices in which I was forced against my will, I, it would curl your hair or words to that effect. There's a scene in um, Planet of the Apes, the very first Planet of the Apes movie, the one with Charlton Heston, where they put Ar- they put um, Charlton Heston on trial. And they said, what should we do with him? You know, like maybe we should kill him. What if he mates with our, with our humans? You know, uh, it's an abomination. Maybe you know, where did he come from? Well, um, um, the, the um, Rod Serling uh, admitted that he cribbed that from Gulliver's Travels because that scene almost exactly exists when in the Island of the Horses. And again, a scene that like only one time in all of the Gulliver versions that have been done for over 100 years since talking pictures or silent pictures only one of them ever dealt with the island of the horses, where the horses are the rulers and the humans are beasts of burden. You know, we're focusing on that. In the uh, Bible, so-called Bible, for, for this uh, proposed series, I say uh, for the first three seasons, our mantra is NFL, no fucking Lilliputians, because that is the thing that immediately, uh, you know, makes you think it's simple. So by the time we meet the Lilliputians, like in the fourth season, they're going to be scary as hell because – Think about, you know, if you don't think little tiny people like uh, with uh, armed with like I was going to make them like samurai, little tiny people with knives is not scary. Then you haven't seen like the Twilight Zone episode with Agnes Moorhead trapped in the cabin or uh, Trilogy of Terror, where a voodoo doll comes to life and chases Karen Black around the house. All right. So anyway, this has almost gotten made five times with some major, major people. Uh, so maybe maybe this we, we were almost going to almost almost on the verge of production about six or seven, six years ago, and then um, Jack Black had a movie come out. That was a, a, a comedy, you know, a, a, a comedy version of it uh, in, in modern times. So that, like, so they go, oh, we can't follow that up. So maybe this time, you know, watch the space. Uh, you know, we, you know, there, there could be news on this within, uh, you know, by uh, by Thanksgiving. And the news is either it's happening or now we're off to uh, studio uh, number set number six. Mr. D'Souza, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. I'm happy to do it. Oh, my God. I had to stop writing and talk about myself. Oh, darn. I'll have to lie down uh, and recover. trying to do my math here. Were you about 30 when you were doing some of your first screenplays, or how was that? I was living in San Francisco in, in the early 70s, and I took the tour of Alcatraz, and I thought, what a great story, and I, wouldn't have anything, I didn't have anything to do with the movie business. So two years later, I was editing a health magazine. I got fired, and I thought, what should I do with my life? I thought back to that story of Alcatraz, and I went down to Fisherman's Wharf and, and saw some tourist books and photos of the prison and so on, and there was a book from uh, an author who lived in Berkeley called Escape from Alcatraz, but it was about the history of all the escapes from the prison. So I went over and met with him and said, look, there's a couple chapters in your book I, I could use the information, and, and if you give me the rights, you know, we'll split the money and blah, blah, blah. And he said, great, but the publishing company owns 
some of the film rights or something. So I called them up, and they never returned my call, and so on, so on. So I'm writing the script. I'm almost finished. So I finally called the publishing company. I said, look, I'm going to go down to Hollywood and try and sell this thing. So you you got to deal with me and let me know what to do. And they said, well, we've decided just to revert the rights back to the author, and uh, you just deal with him. And I said, well, I was kind of suspicious. I mean, I was young. I was probably... 28 or something, and I didn't know anything about the business. I said, why would you do that? And they said, well, the book's out of print, and so we think the chances of your selling the script is so small, it's not worth our time to deal with you. So with that sort of encouragement, I, I, I went down to Hollywood and uh, lived in a friend's uh, den and had a series of sort of typical bizarre Hollywood encounters and ended up getting it to Don Siegel, and he ended up giving it to Clint Eastwood, and, and they ended up making it. And so then I was sort of in the business and doing some other stuff, and I, I wrote and directed this other Clint movie called Tightrope. And and then probably about, I can't remember now, but 1986 or something like that, I get a call from Joel Silver, and uh, he said, we've got this movie, Commando, and... and We've got to go from Fox, and we're we're making it, and we're already in pre-production, but, but we don't like the script. And I'd never really heard of uh, a studio going ahead with a movie without liking the script, but you know, I learned later on a lot has to do with schedules of people, and so they just forge ahead, which is usually a total disaster. Now this is 30 years ago, so my the, some of the details in my mind are probably a little blurry, but uh, I'll tell you as much as I sort of can remember. I remember going to the, the Fox lot, and I had a meeting with Mark Lester, who was the director, and we're sitting there in his office, and I'm saying things like, "Well, this part of the script doesn't work, and this part's not believable, and this part the character's underwritten, and stuff like that." And as I'm sort of droning on, he picks up the phone and starts dialing. And I said, who are you calling? And he said, my shrink. And I said, what for? And he said, you've made me so depressed, I need to see my psychiatrist as soon as possible. So I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting movie to be on. So then about, I guess, a week, two weeks later... I was over on one of the sound stages, and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was there, and, and he was kind of running through some of the lines, which might have been mine or some of the previous drafts. I don't really remember. Arnold was really not an actor. I guess he'd done um, Terminator and, and made Conan, but he really hadn't done a regular movie, as far as I remember. So anyway, he was kind of yelling out the lines like, you know, I'm going to get those bad guys. And I thought, oh, my God, you know. So I, I took Arnold aside and I said, Arnold, in an action movie, the hero should never raise his voice because he's stronger than everyone else and he's in charge of things. And to Arnold's credit, he immediately got it. I mean, most people take, you know, months, years, whatever, but, you know, within 10 seconds, he immediately changed and was saying these lines in sort of a calm, confident voice, and it was just complete change. I I was amazed. So then I guess I'm still writing the script, and I think they might have even started shooting. I'm not certain. I can't remember. But anyway, so I'm, I'm writing sort of toward the end of the movie, 
And I wrote some scene where Arnold, I think, landed a biplane on a lake or something where the bad guys were on a boat. And Arnold gets on the wing of the biplane and crawls across the wing and gets on the boat and gets the bad guys. And so I take it into Larry Gordon, who was running Fox and really making the, the big decisions about the movie. And he reads it and everything. And he said, I really like this scene. And I said, oh, great. I figure everything's perfect. But he says, I have no intention of ever letting this be shot. And I said, well, why? He said, Arnold's not a big star at this point. We want a low budget on this movie. And this scene is so expensive, it'll put us way over budget. So forget this and write something else. So I was kind of a little dejected. So I, I walk I can't remember his, 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 I think, office on the second floor. So I walk down the first floor. I come out of the back of Fox, and there was a door, and there was steam coming out of the door, sort of. And I thought, well, what's that? And, and for some bizarre reason, I opened the door, and there was a utility corridor, a corridor you know, of all the furnaces and electrical wiring and blah, 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 that, that ran the Fox uh, main administration building. I close the door. I run back up to the second floor, and I see Larry, and I say, Larry, we're going to shoot the end of the movie with Arnold in the basement of the Fox administration building. And Larry said, I love it. I haven't seen the movie in a long time, but that's my memory is that he's with the bad guy in some utility quarter and they're, they're dueling it out and everything. So then uh, uh, more time goes by and I, I guess I'd finished writing. I'd left. I was down in Florida and I, I come home and there's seven messages on my answering machine. I thought, well, that's kind of odd because I, I wasn't getting many messages on my machine. And so I played them and there's seven messages from Joel Silver, the producer, in about half an hour. So I call him back, and he said, they're shooting the last scene of the movie. They're arguing about the, the lines. And so I, I remember on a piece of paper writing some dialogue and calling him back and reading him the lines, and he wrote them down. And, and if I remember correctly, that's the, the lines that sort of ended the movie. And so that ended the shooting everything and, and and to my surprise the movie ended up becoming a pretty big hit worldwide I, mean, I did over 100 million i think back then was a lot and i think a lot of the credit really goes to arnold because he he was not an actor but he played this sort of tough action hero very well and the audience liked him and, you know, the script and everything was pretty average, but, but, but the, he was very good, and so it was a success. So that's, that's most of my memories. I'm very curious why you ended up not getting a screenwriting credit for that then. Well, it, it, it's hard to remember. You, you go to arbitration, and I'd never done arbitration before. I really didn't know how. You have to write sort of a summary of your view of why you should get credit. And I didn't really know how to do that. And to tell you the truth, I didn't care that much because I didn't think the movie was going to be good. And so I didn't worry about it. 
I, I, the credits, I, if I remember correctly, they go to the original writers, I forgot their name, and Steve D'Souza. You know, I, I wrote part of the movie, maybe a third, I, I can't remember. Whether I deserve credit or not, I don't know, because it's been so long, and I don't really care. I do have to backtrack a little bit and ask you, how was your experience of shooting uh, Tightrope? That was pretty much a difficult situation, and where I had given... Clint the script and said, I won't sell this unless I can direct it. And he said, oh, you can direct it. But I'd only been in Hollywood, I think maybe three years or something. I can't remember. I'd only set foot on a film set for a day and a half or something. So I assumed on tightrope, you know, we do the normal thing. We, I'd meet with a crew and we'd have some rehearsals, acting rehearsals, so and so on. But we didn't do any of that. We just went straight to the first day, so I, I show up on the first day without any experience of what was going on. So, you know, Clint had made many movies, directed many movies, so it was a struggle with him, and it was not easy for me. But basically, the script was shot as written, and, and so I was happy with the final movie. And there were very few changes. I remember that movie really got written because... I think I was living in San Francisco, and there was a serial killer in Berkeley, and he was like blindfolding women or something, and and killing and raping them, and they were trying to catch him, and it was just the beginning of forensic DNA stuff, which I think is what really interested me, and as far as I remember, there never been a movie about any of that, even though it's on TV all the time now. So I think I kept, I kept all these clippings. And when I moved to L.A., after Alcatraz, I decided to write that story. And it was basically just going to be about standard cop shooting, uh, chasing a, a serial killer. And then I, I thought I needed, I sort of had this idea it would be more interesting that the cop was in Vice Squad because it was, he had some sort of sexual demons uh, along with the rapist or some sort of uh, connection like that. So I remember calling Los Angeles police and, and, and having lunch with a man and a woman who were Vice Squad cops. And I said to them, what is it like? How has it affected you by being in, in vice? And the male cop thought about it and he said, it's made me treat my wife more tenderly in bed. And I thought, oh my God. I said, that, that's the movie. The movie that what's going inside the vice squad, squad cop as he's watching sex crimes is, is really interesting. And so I remember we were shooting a scene, and that line came up. Um, one of the very few changes in the entire script, I don't remember any changes except this one. I remember Clint saying to, to Jean-Vierre uh instead of saying, it's made me treat my wife more tenderly in bed, he just said, it's made me treat my wife more tenderly, which is probably a better thing. But anyway, I was happy with the way that movie came out. It was very dark, and it actually was a pretty sizable hit, but I think a lot of people thought it was too kinky and too dark, and other people thought that Clint was finally doing a movie that was deeper than some of the other stuff he had done. This is your first time directing something, and 
dealing with somebody who has already been in the director's chair so much and has such a strong personality? Well, I think if I had some suggestion that he liked, he would do it. And if he didn't like it, he wouldn't do it. You know, so he was, you know, yeah, knew much more than I did about it. How was it directing a screenplay that you hadn't written without a bounce? After working with a big movie star, I just thought it'd be interesting to do a movie where I wouldn't have to, you know, deal with a star and so on and so on. And actually, Michael Hall was quite young and had a lot of talent. If I remember correctly, I'd heard he'd turned down the lead role in Stanley Kubrick's Vietnam movie. What was that called? A Full Metal Jacket. And, uh, you know, so he was very hot at the time. And that was another sort of difficult situation in which he was on Saturday Night Live. And so the first day of shooting, we had no rehearsal or anything. He came right from the show, right to a cornfield there in Bakersfield where we shot the first scene. And, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into. He, He was you know, troubled. And, and during the movie, um, he has drug problems. And I think he got in a car wreck and we had to shut down the movie and restart it when he was better, you know, so that was kind of a disaster too. I remember when the movie came out, but more than the movie, I remember the soundtrack because I was very into the music scene in the late eighties. How was that putting together that kind of very, um, I guess, like dark wave, new wave type soundtrack. Was that the the um, studio saying we need to use these artists? I mean, you even had Susie Sue in the movie. Man, I'm a big music fan, and, and I, I liked all that music. I can't really remember exactly where the music came from. I knew that, that there should be a lot of music in there, and I knew we wanted a band in the scene where uh, um, um, Anthony Michael goes into a, 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 a club of music and everything. So I just vaguely remember asking, I think it was Columbia did the movie, you know, what artists are available to not only use their music, but we can get and shoot them uh, in this auditorium. And, you know, you're probably given a list of eight bands. You know, first of all, they have to read the script and blah, 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 you know, who's available and so on. And maybe Sushi was on tour in L.A. or, you know, I can't remember, but they were willing. And I remember she had such a great look about her with her eyes was kind of made up and everything. And so I said, you know, I like their music and and they'll be great visually. So let's use them. Ultimately, did the movie, was it a hit or not? Oh, I think it was sort of a semi-bomb. You know, it. You know, Michael's audience or, or fans were really from comedy, and uh, you know, he'd done all his John Hughes movies, and I think, you know, there were a lot of holes in them. It wasn't a very good movie, and so it sort of did sort of mediocre business and sort of disappeared. You didn't direct anything again, but you did write something. You wrote for Tales from the Crypt, and actually. Arnold's, uh, I can't remember if that was his directorial debut, but one of the few things that he's ever directed. So I take it that he liked you a lot. Well, I was friends with Arnold and, and, and Joel Silver, too. Joel Silver was producing that series. And they asked me, I think there was a, a draft of some, uh, uh, they were all half an hour shows, and they asked me to 
work on it or something. And I said, you know, fine and everything. And that, that's really the last thing I can remember doing for a long time because I just was sort of not crazy about the movie business. And I just found at that point that surfing around the world and climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and climbing the Inca steps up the Machu Picchu and trekking in Nepal were just more interesting to me than the movie business. And then I started having some serious back problems where I ended up having eight back operations. I sort of wasn't really working very much. And then about three years ago, I sort of missed writing. And so I, I got back to it. And I came across this story about Jimmy Doolittle after Pearl Harbor had been bombed and President Roosevelt wanted to bomb Tokyo to force the Japanese to back and defend uh, the country and take the pressure off the West Coast because Californians thought they were going to be invaded. And so I'd heard about that story because of that movie, uh, 40 Seconds Over Tokyo, um, that had been made in uh, 1943. I looked at that movie and it, it was totally terrible. It was black and white shot out in the valley and and it was totally inaccurate where the true story was that Jimmy Doodle, Jimmy Doodle had taken 80 pilots and navigators and gunners and so on and trained them in Florida and then they they took them to San Francisco and they got in a carrier and all this stuff happens and they, they bombed Japan and they tried to fly to China and they ran out of fuel and people crashed and died and the Japanese captured them and tortured them and one plane crashed in Russia and they were captured and Doolittle and most of the guys are were in China parachuting through the country and and the Chinese who hated the Japanese because they'd been massacred were were taking Doolittle and his group uh, by rickshaw and and uh, sampan and you know a thousand miles through China and finally Doolittle gets to where Chiang Kai-shek is and he flies back to Washington and President Roosevelt gives him the Medal of Honor. So. Um, I thought this is a great story, you know, it's the true story. So I wrote a, a mini-series, and I hooked up with uh, Jeff Berg, who's a producer and was an agent, and, and he's trying to get the money to make it. But it's been difficult because it's so expensive. It's a five-hour mini-series, but, you know, you, you're going to have to have special effects for these carriers and, you know, the 80, I mean, the 16 uh B-25s is only two that still exist and so on and so on. So we're trying to get that made. And that sort of reawakened my interest in writing. How did you support yourself when you're out there surfing around the world? Well, I made a, a bunch of money on all those previous projects. And, you know, I was always sort of a, a tight white cheapskate. I lived very inexpensively. And then at one point, I started actually getting involved in investing and and sort of self-educated myself and, and found it pretty fascinating. And, you know, the, the thing about investing is you're looking at a computer screen and you're seeing your net worth go up and down daily. And so to, to some extent, I had respect for people in investing because it takes a lot of fortitude. And most people, you know, they get scared and they sell everything or they get greedy and they start buying everything. And so... It, it, you really need to control your emotions. But then after a while, I started to realize, you know, it's really mostly about the numbers. And I kind of missed writing 
because writing's about emotions, and I kind of miss that. And so when that Doolittle story came along, and it was so great, and, and my father had been an admiral, you know, and, and I knew the Navy and so on and so on, I said, I, I'm going to stop concentrating on investing and getting back to writing because the, the Jimmy Doolittle story is really the greatest military raid in, in, in probably world history, and it had never been told, and I, I, I wanted to tell it, so I, I went back to that and wrote that. Mr. Tuggle, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Okay, well, I, I hope you can use it, you know, and I appreciate it, so good luck. Говорят, счастье не вечно. Говорят, один в поле не воин. Говорят многие, делает только он. Девушка вы стюардессы? Девушка у вас должны быть какие-то сосалки с собой. Что, до своей не дотягиваешься? Веселый ты парень, кстати. Смешно умрешь. Этот? Я его не обманул. Меня украли дочь. И кто ее украл, ты знаешь? Знаю. Давай, полковник. Только что на оперативном дежурного вышла какая-то стюардесса. Говорит, вы поспали начало этой сборовой. Скоро. Там хоть что-нибудь осталось? All right, we are back, and we we're talking about Commando. And right before we left, I was talking about Commando Two, which was not called Electric Boogaloo, even though it would have really fit it very well. Did either of you guys get a chance to read Commando Two screenplay? I've actually read it before because it's one of those fascinating scripts out there, and it's all part of this false rumor that Die Hard was meant to be the sequel to Commando. And that is not true. And uh, when I interviewed Stephen E. D'Souza before, he was like, let me explain to you why this isn't true. And he sent me a draft of Commando 2 to kind of break it down. But it's, uh, it's a fascinating kind of what would have been. And it kind of plays into the thing that's kind of touched on in Die Hard 2, that if you are an action hero in one of these films, once you walk away after the credits end, the world's going to know about you. You can't just level an army on an island and not expect to have some sort of celebrity. It's like you can't just save the hostages at Nakatomi Plaza and not to be kind of recognized in the streets. And that was kind of like what Commando 2 is based around. But Mike, I'll let you uh, drop the plot for, for people that might not be familiar with it. 
John Matrix, we find him, but no Cindy. And I can't remember if there's a line to explain away why she's not there, but it's John and Jenny. And he's being approached by a company to, again, I think, do a job. And it is to take care of some guerrilla situation in Panama, I believe. And he doesn't take the job, but Kirby does, because it's Kirby that comes and asks him, asks him about it for uh, working for this company called McCarran. And they go down to Central America and they are just absolutely 100% annihilated by this drug dealer's army. And we have a scene early on that kind of reminds me a little bit of another 48 hours where it is this uh, incredible prison break. But I think it's even more incredible because there's helicopters involved. There's a lot of helicopters in this movie. Helicopters involved. The guys just get wiped out down in Panama. And then Arnold is just like really pissed off. Like, how could this happen? Who let the drug dealer know that these people were going to be there? And then he goes to try to speak with McCarran, which leads to this incredible action sequence of him basically breaking into McCarran's place. He's, you know, this whole, like, uh, it's basically, basically like a Halliburton kind of place or Blackwater. And he manages to break in, steal secrets, and then faxes the secrets to McCarran just as McCarran's entering into his own office and Matrix is there with his feet up on the table, probably smoking a cigar, knowing Arnold. And then he gets hired to do it. And then you find out, of course, that McCarran is the bad guy. He frames John and there's this, there's actually like some courtroom drama, which I was very surprised when that happens. So I'm trying to remember how it ends though. This is kind of similar to the script I've seen. So basically it sounds slightly different. So the one I've, read is that after the events of commando matrix sets up a security firm and i think mclaren hires him to oversee their security protect their executives from being kidnapped and he also arms their uh headquarters so he oversees all the security and then he finds out that uh, mclaren is in the illegal arms business and uh the security section's just a front and uh, Jenny and Cindy are in it, from what I remember. Jenny is working there, and Cindy's a corporate lawyer. And they end up in the building, and then Arnie has to break into the building and get through all the security he set up, which includes, like, automated security systems, guard dogs. So it was all kind of about Arnie breaking into a building, and I think that's where the rumor that it that Die Hard was going to be a Commando sequel, that's where the two kind of got conflated. So it sounds like that is a very similar draft to the one I've read. But um, yeah, the, the big kind of finale is like Arnie breaking his way and smashing through his own like security systems and guards to kind of get to uh, McLaren. Yeah, and the one I read, Jenny actually gets shot at one point because John is on the run from the cops and he gets uh, framed for murder of this guy that he was chasing who works for McCarran and was selling drugs. Jenny gets hospitalized. And the version that I read sounds like, yeah, like a different version than from what you have. I have the first revised draft uh, from February 6, 1989, which was re- revised by none other than Frank Darabont. So if you're going to have somebody rewrite you, I guess Darabont's a pretty good person to do it. And that's the one that I read, which has, it turns out Kirby is a bad guy at the end? He is. Yeah, which is super weird in a lot of ways. 
But I guess it makes sense because movie logic would always denote that a good guy becomes a bad guy in the second film. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Live long enough to, in Kirby's case, have your brains blown all over the place. (laughs) I believe that's that's what happens at the end of the script. I believe, Mike, we read the same Commando 2 script because the one that I have is Darabont on it as well. Yeah, there's this whole thing of uh, Matrix saying, I believe in the words and you don't. And yeah, Kirby at the end saying words and matrix the constitution of the united states i first read when i was a boy back in east germany a handwritten black market copy the words carried greater meaning for me than any i'd ever seen boy this is a long speech for arnold they spoke to my heart waving a flag at the same time (laughs) they spoke to my heart they're pure and simple noble and strong the finest words i know and you pissed on them And then he takes an American flag and jams it through Kirby's head. (laughs) Might as well be. (laughs) I was talking about this last night while there's all these Commando 2 scripts floating around. Look, it's 2020. Let's make a Commando sequel now. But let's have Arnold be the one captured. Or Jenny's daughter gets captured and Arnold and Jenny have to go save her. I mean, come on. Like, that's wouldn't that be like all the rage? Wouldn't that be like the hit sequel film that we're all waiting for? I would love to see Alyssa Milano tool up. To kill bad guys. I'd like to see Alyssa Milano do that. It's got to have that certain level of self-awareness, though, and I don't think you can pull that off these days. It, it would come over as almost like a parody. I, I'm not sure you could pull it off. It's like when you do belated sequels to some of these films, and kind of what made it so special was that time and that tone, and when you try and duplicate that 30, 35 years later, it just feels awkward. It's lightning in a bottle for a reason. Maybe a graphic novel would be a better approach. You could definitely pull it off as a comic. And they did that with uh, the Alien 3 script. Is there any reason why we didn't get Commando 2 proper with Arnold? Is it because at this point he was too expensive? Well, this would have been... Because the date on the script that you and I read, Chris, was 1989. February 1989. And I don't know about that draft that, that you had read, Ty, but... In the late 90s, he was poised for bigger things. You know, he's, he had just done Running Man, Red Heat, and Predator, and Twins. And then immediately, 1990 would have kicked off with Total Recall, Kindergarten Cop, and then Terminator 2 in 1991. Once Terminator 2 hit, it was a, to me, it was a completely different Arnold after that. That was such a huge movie for him. There's also the thing that apart from the Terminator films, Arnie doesn't really tend to do sequels out often. He does like, you know, Conan, but it's kind of like he keeps moving. There's the odd character he's revisited and he keeps talking about doing a King Conan film, which I'd love. And, you know, triplets, if that ever happens, but it's, you know, True Lies 2 never happened. They were going to do a, another Kindergarten Cop, and they eventually did with Dolph Lundgren. But he's always moving on to new projects. And I think, you know, after Terminator 2, doing a sequel to Commando just, I don't want to say seemed beneath him, but, you know, he, he was commanding $20 million a film, and the films were, like, costing $100 million at that point. Why go back and do another $25 million action film when you could do True Lies? Commando 2, to me, always feels like a a pretty big what if. They do such a... I feel like they do a good job of setting up a possible sequel at the end of the first film, too. I mean, obviously, then we have things that are kind of remakes or reimaginings. But the 
Commando 2 experience with Arnold, it always feels like such kind of a missed opportunity because there is something there that would have been interesting, clearly from the scripts that we've all read. There is something there that would have been an interesting idea to mine with his character, and it just feels like a little bit of a, a you know a, a missed opportunity. I don't know. He t- he tells him no chance. He's a man of his word. Yeah, but that's what they always say. <laughs> that's the point. That's why he says no chance because you know he's coming back in the sequel. I mean, that's the that's the joke, right? No chance until the next time. I, I have nothing else other than the fact that they made David Patrick Kelly's character imply that they're going to rape. John Matrix's daughter, which I always felt like was the most unnecessary of unnecessary bad guy lines in Commando. He's the only character that hints at that. All the other characters are like, we're just going to kill her. I mean, you get those two guards that talk about how they're going to gleefully cut her throat like it's butter. There, there are a few kind of slimy types in the bad guy's ranks. But yeah, when, when Sully says, you know, give us a little bit more time to spend with your daughter... You're like, oof, that that is uncalled for. And also considering how I didn't really think that David Patrick Kelly's character was ever going to meet up with his buddies in Valverde anyways. You're doing your own thing now, guy. Go away. You're going to get dropped off of a cliff here in like 10 minutes anyway, so don't worry about it. She was 13 at this time, so it's like, yeah, stay the fuck away, please. We are not in Kentucky. Valverde does not have the same mores as Kentucky. It's one of those lines that, like, always is just the ickiest line of the movie for yeah, you me. can't see my face, but I'm making a very yuck face right now. I believe now. you. I yeah. believe you. Way to bring down the conversation, Chris. Hey, I mean, it's something I, It's something that you need to talk about because it's just so weird. It is the one line in the movie that I think makes no sense being there. We didn't get a sequel, but we did get a remake. Though, I don't think that anybody's name is on this remake, not an official remake. So, there was a movie called Den D, also known as Doomsday. Or Russian Commando. Or Russian Commando. And, my God. I mean, it is more similar than dissimilar. I think this is probably, what, like, 90% faithful to Commando? I mean, it is... Really, really close. It's pretty much a shot-for-shot remake, apart from, you know, a few scenes which I just kind of felt, you know, maybe they didn't have a giant mall in where they were filming it in Russia, so they opted for the public swimming pool. And, you know, maybe the lead actor is a bit of a a base-jumping fan and was kind of like, we've got to have a scene in, guys, where I do a bit of base-jumping. But apart from that, it's it's literally like watching a fan shot-for-shot remake. It's crazy. Yeah, what would they call that? Like a, a sweeted version, I suppose? Yeah, a sweeted version. That's right. Yeah. Like Be Kind Rewind. A very, a very cheap Russian equivalent. But granted, the lead actor looks, looks the part. He, he is built. He's built. And I think he also directed this. I think it might be his only directing credit. Mikhail Porchenkov. And I thought that he did a pretty good job. I was really ready to hate this. Like, as soon as the movie started, and yeah, we got the base jumping and stuff, but when they do the mountain chase and he hops on to a, um, a snowmobile, I was like, oh, wow, this is so similar. And then, yeah, Sally trying to pick up this airline stewardess and all of this stuff. I'm like, wow, this is so close. But I have to say, you know, they, when they redid the Sally thing and, 
he told Sully, instead of telling Sully, you know, you're a funny guy, I'm going to kill you laugh, last, he says, you're a funny guy, I'm going to make sure you die funny. And when he drops him off of the side of the building that he's on, rather than a, a mountain, uh, he says, well, I told him he'd die funny, and I didn't lie. And he's holding Sully's underpants. <laughs> there, I think that kind of level of 12-year-old humor runs through it a lot, because the scene at the public swimming pool just seems to be a reason to get shots of cleavage and bums. They know their audience, I think. There's that weird theme in the movie of watermelons because he cuts a watermelon up for his daughter and taps it and then it like opens up. And then later when Sally is passing money to this guy at this public pool, he brings a watermelon with him and all the money's in the watermelon. And I just kept waiting for watermelons to show up more in the movie. But then they have that big climactic battle. And what is that? Are those like cranberries or something that they fall into? Like the big fight between him and the Bennett uh, counterpoint just are having this fight in this factory and they fall into this big vat of red fruit looking stuff. And I'm like, okay, that works. And we do get outtakes at the end, which is great. It's very Jackie Chan esque, these outtakes. I kind of like that. It kind of just showed off the, uh, the cheap kind of DIY approach to the film. And I kind of enjoy that. I like seeing outtakes from action films. It's, it's, it's good fun. It shows the work that's kind of going into it. And how many times they had to fall into that vat or almost fall into that vat. And I did like the Bennett guy all in his underwear, just slathered in the red fruit doing a little dance at the end. That was a pretty good way to end it. Oh, that's, yeah. Let's talk about the fake Bennett, the big, fat, balding guy who dies by getting was it a knife just shoved down his gullet. Insane. Well, I want to thank my co-hosts for this special episode, Ty and Chris. Chris, what is happening in your world these days, sir? As for me right now, on the CultureCast, my movie podcast, we are talking about Bollywood films. That's our first foray into the genre of Bollywood films. Uh, if that is something you have no experience with, come on over and listen to a couple episodes of the CultureCast, because Bollywood films are three hours long, and one hour of those movies, regardless of the genre, is going to be singing and dancing. So if that sounds interesting to yeah, you... Yeah, it is. Exactly. It's, it's great. Bollywood, I think, is is one of the greatest genres of all time, because it has everything. And every movie should have an hour of singing. If this movie had an hour of singing, I think Commando would be a much more entertaining film, if you have Bennett and Sully breaking into song together. That's what's going on at the Culture Cast. You can find me on Twitter at Casualty underscore Chris. I do have to say that was one of my biggest disappointments because there is a Indian series called Commando, and I was so excited hoping that it was a Bollywood version of Commando, but then it's just not. It's I tried watching the first one, and I was like, yeah, no. As soon as they introduced the blind villain and he's threatening this family, I was just like, this is not Commando. I'm sorry. I mean, again, I just want Arnold and David Patrick Kelly breaking into song before he kills him, and like that would have made my day. And then, like, the wire work, like, he's falling, but then he's also, like, bouncing and dancing at the same time. Exactly! Yeah, there you go. See? You get it. You get it. That'd be fantastic. And, Ty, what's keeping you busy? So, last year, or earlier in the year, uh, the documentary I spent a lot of last year working on, In Search of the Last Action Heroes, came out. If you like Commando, you'll get a kick out of it. Um, I helped write and produce it. I came out to LA to do a lot of the interviews. And it basically charts how the 80s were the decade of the action films and how they've evolved into today and what happened to all the uh, action heroes that we know and love. Uh, I think that's probably on most places like 
uh, iTunes or Google Films. I've just finished the follow-up to my first book. So a couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Born to be Bad, where I interviewed actors famed for playing bad guys. So in that, I did speak to Vernon Wells and David Patrick Kelly and Bill Duke, as well as people like Ronnie Cox and William Sadler and Stephen Burkoff. And I've just finished a follow-up, which should be available for pre-order in the next month. So that's Born to be Bad Part 2 classic original sequel title and that will feature interviews with the likes of uh, Robert Patrick, Stephen Lang, Brian Thompson, Scott Adkins, Mohammed Kesey, Kim Coates, William Fickner, Tymar and yeah so that's I've just yeah I finished spent the first part of the lockdown finishing that sent it over to my publishers and so hopefully it'll be out just before Christmas and if you are looking to get into Bollywood films I also run the Bristol Bad Film Club and I spent a couple of months ago uh, a day watching the Bahubali films, which are the most expensive Bollywood films ever made. Technically, they're Tollywood because they're Tamil films. But if you like your films big, bombastic and packed with awkward CGI, then imagine like a Bollywood Hercules story, but with lots of scenes of armies beating the shit out of each other. It's a perfect first step into Indian cinema. So Bahubali. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks for everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
us, we are the closest living out here. Jenny and me putting ice cream on each other's noses and feeding the deer. Jenny and me, we were going to build a normal life here, a carefree existence of laughter and play. But General Kirby, he fed them right to us, and then the bastards took her away. Jenny and me. Your old friend Bennett. I thought you were dead. Not true, Tom. If you want your daughter, you'd better play along. Fuck you, Tom. An assassination. I will not do this. You pull it off, she'll be just fine. Don't put me through if this. If you fail, we will mail her to you. No deal. You will get her back one piece at a time. Jenny. Look, you have to help. They took my Jenny. You give me a lift, and we follow the trail. We will fend off all the more policemen. We let Sully go, and Cook we impale. We start to do some last-minute shopping. So many good ones, not easy to choose. We borrow this plane, and we fly to the island. Oh, fucking hell is about to break loose. Jenny and me. Me, Jenny and me. John, it's your old friend Bennett. Let's party. Told you I'd be ready for you. We'll see, Bennett. You know I'm feeling good, John. Just like old times, Matrix and me. And me. When you're laying dead before me, shit. I'll finally fulfill my dream, Bennett. Gonna shoot you between the balls. So do it. Gonna kill you, Bennett. Let off some steam. You know the two of us We're going home now Back to the mountains For Jenny and me Wipe those tears away Cause daddy's here now Everyone's dead You're finally free We want you to start up your unit again, John No chance And do you see this woman standing here? She's going to be your new mother We're going home now If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.